Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I am your host, B. Chavez, although more on that in a moment. I would also like to welcome you to the first episode of the year 2017. Uh, I did take an unadvertised break at the new year. It seemed that everyone was very uh, vested in their holiday festivities, and putting together a decent show was a bit difficult, so I decided to hold off and bring you a much better show first of February, which this is. So, on to the show, and on to my remark about being your host. What is going to ensue is a little bit different. I want to give you a bit of backstory on why and how it came to be, and that is one of the major tenets when I put together this show was to eventually and ultimately cover drugs in sports. It, sports pharmacology, performance-enhancing drugs, whatever nomenclature you want to use. And I interviewed, you know, preliminarily interviewed, more than a few experts on the subject. And quite honestly, I was uh, highly disappointed with each and every one of them for assorted reasons, ranging from their willingness to talk out loud to their actual body of knowledge. And it became very, very difficult to continue pursuing that concept of doing a show. And as many of you know, or at least repeat listeners know, a uh, very good relationship with Lyle McDonald. He did two outstanding podcasts uh, here on the show, uh, one for weight loss, which is just absolutely uh, amazing, and one for uh, accruing weight, which is equally amazing. Through just chatting off air with Lyle, we came to the idea that he knows enough about the subject of sports performance drugs and, and performance enhancing drugs to engage in a conversation, and we arrived at the concept of, why doesn't Lyle hijack the show and interview me? At first, it seemed a very strange and foreign idea, and uh, after more talk and more fleshing it out, it really seemed like the way to do things. And so what you're about to hear is a recording that is exactly that. Lyle essentially usurps the show, becomes the host, and I do my best to uh, follow along as the guest. Uh, I will warn you on two points. One, um, this is very alien to me, so I wasn't very good at it. Uh, you know, were it not for Lyle, it would be a disaster. Um, I speak very well, I think, but uh, somehow I don't do as well in the follow as I do in the lead. So uh, perhaps that's just an issue of practice. I, mean, I have been the host in all of these shows, so it was a little difficult for me to do. Uh, and secondly... Um, there was an actual um, problem with the microphone I was using. And uh, unfortunately, it made the audio quality on my end pretty poor. At times, it sounds like I'm in a dentist's office next to that little sucky tube. Um, I didn't know this until the recording was entirely done. And unfortunately, it does affect the audio quality. However, the content is so good that I hope you uh, suffer through the poor audio and just focus on the content. So, anyway, with a little more from me, let's move right into Lyle McDonald interviewing me on the subject of performance-enhancing drugs. You're listening to Sports Performance Radio. All right, guys, so 
This is Welcome to Evil Genius uh, Podcast. My name is Lionel McDonald, and we're going to be doing things a little bit differently this time. Usually Broderick is the man behind the microphone, doing the interviews and keeping things moving with his excellent questions. But this time, I'm going to be interviewing him. Uh, the topic is going to be predominantly steroids, with a little bit of a look at other performance-enhancing drugs. And since he's the expert here, I'm going to be the guy trying to guide things. A uh, little bit of background, if you don't know me, I've been in the field forever. I was on the Internet in 94, so actually physiology, fat loss, muscle growth, tends to be my primary thing. Uh, steroids have never been my primary area of interest. I know enough to be dangerous, and hopefully I know enough to um, ask some of the right questions. Some of this stuff came up when he and I discussed muscle growth in a podcast I did last year. So I'm going to lead things, and hopefully uh, this will go well. So, Broderick, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> Lyle, thanks, and thank you for doing this. I appreciate it greatly. And no, the, last two that, the, the last two that you did were just amazing, and uh, to be truthful, I've just been fucking itching for a reason to get you back on the radio, and this is as yeah. good as any, so, so raise hell, my friend. All right, and you know, part of this is, you know, Broderick, is, he knows, he's, he's, he is much more of a, into this area, and as much information as there on the Internet, as always, a lot of it's bad, a lot of it's wrong, and a lot of it's dangerous. So we are going to start at the bottom and then probably get into more complex stuff without getting overwhelming. So let's start with the basics. Anabolic steroids, what are they? Um, actually, let me, let me go sideways and start with the real beginning. First thing okay. I want to point out is that testosterone is, in fact, not an anabolic steroid. Uh, it is almost always ubiquitously grouped with, uh, but in reality it is not. Testosterone okay. is the root androgen. It is the thing that makes blank little androgynous templates into men. Uh, estrogen being the opposite of that, making blank little templates into women. Um, so it is important to understand, it may be not important, but it's relevant to understand that testosterone is the original root thing and all anabolic steroids are made from it or patterned after it. Uh, very big differentiation. Uh, it should be a bigger deal legally uh, than it is, but uh, ask any good pharmacologist and they will tell you that testosterone is an androgen, not an anabolic steroid. It is a steroid. We'll have maybe a few words on that later, uh, right. but it is, it is not an anabolic steroid. An anabolic steroid is a synthetic derivative of the root androgen testosterone. And, and so. just for folks, you know, in case you're kind of missing what sounds like a semantic distinction, if you, if you, let's say if you had a pharmacist who was really open-minded or found another source, you would never, you could not get testosterone. You cannot, that is what the body makes. That is produced in the testicles from cholesterol, yada, yada, yada. It's got a certain structure that's what steroids. You could not get testosterone. You always get this synthetic derivative. So that's, that's what he's saying somewhat semantic, but it is important. You just, you simply do not take straight testosterone ever. I mean, it's, it's always a synthetic. So anyway, um, one quick question. You mentioned testosterone is an androgen. Correct. You your steroids called anabolic androgenic steroids, right? Absolutely. What, that, what, what do those words mean? What anabolic, androgenic, what's that distinction? All right. Well, you, you, you asked a good question by way of, I think, sarcasm. Um, what they actually mean in Latin, anabolic means to 
make larger. It means to increase in size. It's it's Latin for growth promoting. Uh, Androgenic is Latin for making masculine. So the the root testosterone has two major actions in a blank androgynous template that is a prepubescent child. It will, one, create growth. It is anabolic. It causes the growth of muscle, changes in soft tissue and bone density and all sorts of things, and even the growth of uh, hair follicles and all of that. And then secondly, it is the thing that makes that blank template masculine. It changes temperament, behavior, psychological patterning in the brain, as well as aggression and all the things that go with it that make a child into a man. So you have masculinizing effects, and then you have anabolizing or enlarging effects. Um, go ahead. I, I have more on that, but go ahead and see. I will see what you have to say, my friend. I was just going to sort of just just to add a couple things. You know, it, while we think of these these things as you know muscle building and obviously masculinizing behavior, there are the things. There's a reason little boys, oily skin, this facial hair, Absolutely. body hair patterns are very clearly very different and distinct once puberty occurs. And that is another androgenic effect and frequently a side effect. And I'm sure we'll touch on, on some of that. Um, this may be getting ahead of it, right? Broderick, you said that, you know, steroids uh, molecules are not the same as testosterone. Testosterone mm-hmm. clearly has dual effects in the body. You'll often hear folks, you know, but, but there's more than one testosterone drug. Part of that's commercial. There's, you know, however many, 30, 40, 50 different derivatives. They used to talk about the anabolic androgenic ratio, which was supposedly an indicator. Actually, the I, I didn't mean, just, Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want to interrupt, but that's actually what I held my tongue on 90 seconds ago. That's actually what I was going to leap into next. By, yeah, by all means, go ahead. Lead away. What people want to, okay, so, you know, you can think of generally the anabolic effects is good. They build muscle, they make you stronger. Well, maybe that might be androgenic, but, like, that, those are the positive benefits. The androgenic effects, other than going through puberty, maybe not so much. When you're uh, an athlete or a bodybuilder, or especially a female, and that's a whole different issue, masculinizing effects might not be a good thing. Hair loss, uh, back knee, a lot of zits on the back, oily skin, Becoming even more of an aggressive asshole, maybe not a good thing. And the, the, the idea, the, my understanding of the idea was they were they tried to make drugs that had a greater anabolic effect, the positive, while minimizing the the quote unquote negative androgenic effects. So Absolutely. what was that? How did they determine that if you want to really get up into that? And does it mean anything from a practical well, I, standpoint? I, in fact, do want to cover that because, again, I think it's very important um, to some degree because for practical application. But more importantly, these compounds really need to be understood, and this is just deeply relevant in understanding the basic function. Okay. What was done What was done is a whole series of comparative experiments um, with rats where they analogized uh, a certain piece of anatomy in rats to humans, okay. and what they okay. used was something called, in rats, called a seminal vesicle. It's what rats have instead of a prostate. Um, okay. I don't know if uh, it's instead of or if it's uh, pre-evolutionary. I can never make that distinction. I knew okay. once, but it doesn't matter. What they okay. have as a prostate is this thing called a seminal vesicle, and they use the levator ani muscle, which is the essentially what rats have as a calf. So what they did is they euthanized an enormous number of rats, 
just regular old garden variety, you know, lab rats. And they measured their overall body weight and then the weight specifically of this organ, the seminal vesicle, and the weight of their detached calves. So they said rats have a rough mass of whatever, you know, this this point something kilograms, and then their prostate is this big and their calf is this big. So once they got this baseline numbers of this is what's, quote, normal, they then applied these assorted drugs to the rats and then retested those figures. So they gave rats testosterone at a certain milligram per kilogram, and they found out that their body weight inflated by X amount. So they were now, you know, plus so many point kilograms. And their calves increased in size a given amount. But unfortunately, also so did their prostate. So they used the prostate as the, quote, masculinizing side or the androgenic index. Okay. The, and they used the increase in mass of the calf as the anabolic index. So basically they were just comparing how much bad tissue grew versus how much good or intended target tissue grew. Okay. And testosterone, they uh, came to a, a ratio of very, very ironically, just about one-to-one. They're for equal amounts of equal amounts of growth in, in you know, contractile protein. There was an equal amount of stimulation in unwanted tissues. You typically don't want your prostate to grow. Sure. So then these, you know, fancy, clever, 1940s and 50s organic chemists did things to the molecule of testosterone. They altered it in various ways and okay. created these new drugs, like, let's say, Dianabol. So then they applied Dianabol at that same milligram per kilogram to a group of rats. And what okay. they found was they got the same, potentially the same or greater muscle growth and considerably less prostate growth. So the okay. implication is that drug has less masculinizing effects and okay. so it's important to know how they did those tests. And they did this with just about every drug in the Pantheon. Uh, for One, for the purpose of proving their product in, in terms of, you know, marketing. And one, right. because that becomes relevant to medical applications. There are applications where a doctor might actually want an androgenic drug, say in a child that's not proceeding, uh, not moving through puberty in a natural fashion or a normal fashion. Well, androgens might in fact be just what that particular medical case needs. Uh, so there, there's kind of an attitude where these drugs were invented wholly for sports. And the reality is that's not the case. They were actually invented for medical purposes. Uh, they've been hijacked wholesale by athletes. But the reality is every drug in the PDR has a medical application. Well, what? So, I mean, that's, yeah. Other than, I would just interrupt and say, other than, you know, the occasional, you know, custom compound, you know, Balco's, the clear and the cream, like, people do think of these, all these drugs as sports drugs, right? Erythropoiesis. Correct. It was not invented for endurance athletes. It was invented for cancer treatment and problems with, with uh, red blood cell production, severe anemia. And things like that, athletes being who they are, realized, aha, if I'm an endurance athlete, this is good. I remember when EPO started, it was a make, it was really of A lot of it started kind of, you know, falling off a truck, as the saying goes. Um, <laughs> quite sure how this extremely well-regulated drug was getting into the hands of athletes. And it's funny how some delivery guys or, or however this works, how hospital, how open they are to, you know, having a couple cases fall off a truck. In any event, just kind of, you know, emphasizing Broderick's point, these were not, even Dianabol, there, there are rumors, anyway, that, you know, steroids were used by the Nazi regime. You know, if you want, if you want to make good little killers, you want them to be 
aggressive psychos. I mean, you really do. Yep, big, strong, angry people tend to fight well. Yeah, you know, even now there's widespread use of amphetamines, of drugs, because they, you know, and, and even nutritionally, the military is very interested. How do we maintain performance in someone who's in a high-stress condition who's getting four hours of sleep a night? How do we keep them going so that they can kill the bad guys? And Absolutely. Realistically, drugs work better, but, of course, they're not going to talk about those programs. They're going to talk about taurine and tyrosine and the stuff we're using for mental clarity. Um, let's back up maybe a little bit, and this may Very be good. way more than you want to get into. So we're talking about the anabolic-androgenic ratio, right? And even testosterone yes. has dual effect. Now, we know that the way hormones work in the simplistic sense, right, everyone uses the same uh, lock and key analogy, right? The hormone is a key. Hormones bind to receptors. There's receptors on a cell. The hormone binds to it, right? The, the key fits in the lock. And the way I put it in my books is the key fits in the lock and stuff happens, which eliminates about 37 steps in between the, the binding and the stuff happens. But, but for practical purposes, that's mostly what you need to know. What differentiates the two? Testosterone is testosterone. What determines its anabolic? And the same thing would hold for these other drugs, clearly. But are there different receptors? Do the receptors respond? Are there different cascades of signaling? What's determining the difference for a drug that, or a, a, a hormone that is simply a hormone? Uh, well, first of all, there's a, you know, a pantheon of hormones that are not steroids and not androgens. So we're talking in a very small caps here when we're referring to androgens. There's all sorts of peptide hormones flying around. There's you know, right, right, right. and growth hormones, so on, all sorts of stuff in the background. Um, you know, we're talking about a very specific receptor and a very specific key that locks in it. Uh, I right. think that's important because some people kind of lose themselves and think that, you know, I'm a bodybuilder, I'm the most important thing in the world, and obviously to me, you know, there's only steroids. And that's not the case. There's just shitloads sure. of hormones doing shitloads of things in the background that you never know anything about. Of so, course. All, in, all I'm asking it, is for, we've yeah. got this one, Technically, this one hormone, testosterone. And I would also note from listeners, the body produces other androgens. DHEA is an adrenal androgen. Like, we focus on testosterone, and actually in women, DHEA is a far more relevant androgen than testosterone. Women have 130th of testosterone level. That's getting beyond, that's not really relevant. But how does this (laughs) single compound, this single testosterone, how does the body differentiate the anabolic versus androgenic effects at the biological level? Well, to to start with, you you alluded to, is there multiple receptors? And the the reality is that's actually been deeply argued by some really fucking smart people. And Mm. it turns out that it turns out there might... Yeah, it turns out there might actually be a few var- very subtle sub-varieties of receptor. But in, okay. in general, and for practical purposes, that's incredible minutia that doesn't matter. There okay. are testosterone receptors, and that's it. And all right. of these drugs are so closely patterned after testosterone, they essentially pick that lock and fit in that lock as if they were the proper key. So the receptor doesn't know it's not getting testosterone, even though it's actually getting drostanolone or, you know, stenozolol or whatever the hell clicks into it. Um, Now, how that slightly derivated drug transmits a slightly derivated set of instructions is actually relatively unknown by science. It's known that it's done through 
the cyclic AMP transmission of information from the receptor site to the cell nucleus. Okay. Um, the, the exact fashion in which that happens is, to the best of my knowledge, a relative unknown. Okay, one quick, one quick thing, right? So I mentioned the lock and key, right? It's generally been mm-hmm. thought we've got a hormone, we've got a receptor. In this case, we're talking about androgens and the androgen receptor. I know there's been some, some really groundbreaking science. I'm going to say recently, and by that, that usually means within a decade for, for scientific Correct. progress. That's recently. That many hormones and testosterone uh, or steroid hormones may be one of them, Maybe binding to the cell membrane without a receptor and having membrane-driven uh, effect. Um, I know there's also that, what's called genomic versus non-genomic effects that I think we'll probably get into later. <laughs> does that have any absolutely. relevance? It, it, it absolutely does, and, and it, you're getting into such fine detail. Okay. There's a thought, there's a strong thought, and actually Paul Borison back in the, uh, in mm-hmm. the 90s was, yeah. talk, was talking about this, and he was a wicked super uh, so crazy. Hard to deal with, but wicked fucking smart. Right. He felt he felt that that surface uh, translocation, as he was calling it at the time, and I don't know if that name stuck, but he was absolutely yeah. the first person I heard talk about this. That right. surface translocation or non-receptor driven tran- nuclear transmission. He felt that only took place at very high saturation doses. He had protocols designed specifically to drive that action. He felt that the typical, you know, one gram, two gram kind of dosing, you just uh-huh. got that normal, uh, yeah. you know, drug to receptor action. But he felt at the, you know, four or five gram where it was potentially a situation where literally all of the receptors were, uh, yeah. were occupied, but yet there was still a surplus of drug that you might get this surface translocation action. Okay that could generate new and different effects. Um, and, and to, to, my, to my understanding, I, that, that's yeah. not been proven. But uh, really smart people are that. thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, and I know we're going to come back to that. This is something that came up in, in when you and I talked about muscle growth that I think is for a little bit later on, so we'll, we'll couch that. Absolutely. But I think, the sum, I think the sum up for listeners is this. Testosterone has both anabolic and androgenic effects. The distinction in the body, it happens because it happens, and we'll leave it at that. And these other drugs were developed ideally to have relatively different anabolic versus androgenic effects for whatever reason, either to maximize the tissue building and minimize the side effects, or in some rare cases medically to deliberately push the, the masculinizing effects. Not something athletes would ever want unless you really, unless you're a woman and want a beard. I mean, like, basically you're not, like, the side effects, are rarely desirable, but in a male that's not going through puberty, clearly very desirable. That's not really yeah. relevant. So I, can we say that for athletic use, whether bodybuilding, strength, power, sports, that we want to maximize the anabolic effect while ideally minimizing the androgenic effect? You know, Is that a fairly uh, safe um, conclusion? You know what? I, to some degree, you might be baiting me there because the reality is I wouldn't immediately say that. Um and I'm serious. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not giving you shit here. Um, for most purposes, you're absolutely right. However, I can envision situations, and we might talk about some of those, in terms of practical application, where okay. the actual side effects could be more prized than the intended effect. So the re- it really comes down to, and this is something that when I coach athletes, and yes, 
I coach athletes on drugs. Right. Um, it really comes down to something I say over and over and over again. It is an issue of the right tool for the right job. You, you must okay. understand what effects you want, and then you must understand what compounds provide those effects and dose okay. accordingly. Well, and, and I guess you mean, as I think about it, you even mentioned one, the aggression, the behavior changes. Are those, those are androgenic effects? Clearly, Absolutely. You know, and, and we know that practically, like bodybuilders and powerlifters frequently use different drugs. This is an important thing. Absolutely. Bodybuilders, they might want aggression during workouts, but they don't want the body hair. They don't want any, they don't want any of that. A strength power athlete, maybe a football player, powerlifter who's getting ready to go into the bar, they want to be as aggressive as fuck. And maybe, and, and there's another consideration that I think is often forgotten, weight class athletes. They Absolutely. They so too much muscle mass might be not, not a good thing. In Absolutely. Which the anabolic, and which actually leads into my next question. So we have this ideal, this theory. Let me go back. You mentioned the rat studies they did with the levator, Annie, and the, um, the seminal vesicles. Do these have any relevance to humans? You know, the reality is it's assumed that they have relevance to humans. But these studies have never been done on humans, and this stuff has never been truly verified or vindicated. Um, if you're asking me as, a, as a, an opinion, my opinion is it's probably not note-for-note note parallel, but it's a okay. strong indicator, and it gives you good guidelines. Okay. Which actually, so that, that brings me immediately to the follow-up, right? And this kind of gets, again, into that athlete-specific thing, and I'm going to assume here that we want talking, let's say, muscle growth, just purely. Ideally, we want maximum maximum anabolic effects with minimum side effects. Correct. There are drugs that do that, and women especially. Female bodybuilders generally don't Absolutely. want more body hair. They don't want this, and there's a general tendency to recommend relatively more anabolic drugs. You know, Winstrol, Anavar, these are typically considered. This isn't meant to be sexist. This is just terminologically girly drugs. These are drugs that are safe for women. Testosterone, not injectable testosterone, not really safe for women simply because, I mean, they build muscle like a champ. However, the woman's going to end up with a mustache, and it may deepen her voice. It may actually cause her clitoris, which is similar tissue to the penis. That may grow, and many of these are permanent. But there's also a general belief. I think Dan Duchesne said it best. He goes, these are, you know, these are the girly drugs. But he said flat out, they're shitty anabolic. They don't cause, they're not very effective. So this theoretical anabolic androgenic ratio, which looks great on paper, clearly works on rats, in the real world, if you want to get as big as possible, if you want to gain as much muscle mass as possible, the reality is more androgenic drugs work better. I mean, assuming it kind of still has a good anabolic effect. So why does this theoretical number not work out in the real world? It doesn't seem to. Well, there's a, there, I got a number of answers for that. One is something that you said earlier, and I really did the best to bite my tongue. I was real proud of myself. To a large degree, it is my belief that most bodybuilders, and I don't mean to pick on bodybuilders, but they're easy to pick on because it's a rule Fair they're not, not particularly bright and easily mm. led astray. Um, and that is, most bodybuilders, in my opinion, prize the side effects of drugs, of, of sports drugs, certainly more than the effects. And I mean this. I do. I really mean that. 
For instance, let me just pull two drugs that people might know the names of just out of my little drug hat. And I'll say, you have this really advanced, sophisticated, highly derivated drug called primabolin, okay? And you have this relatively crappy, crude, early drug called anadrol, okay? Mm-hmm. If you apply these to two identical twin brother wannabe bodybuilders, the anadrol brother will put on infinitely more, quote, little dumb rabbit ears, weight. He will get weight. much bigger. The other yeah. brother will accrue a very slow but accelerated, over normal, retention of muscle, actual, real, contractile protein. Will he okay. look like the other brother? Will he be 30 or 40 pounds lighter? Yes, he will. But all of the muscle which he accrued is actually real, live, functional muscle. So, the reality is that the bloating and retention of water carbohydrate, creatine phosphate, and all this shit that comes along with the anadrol brother, that's all really side effects medically. And the muscle mass underneath of it is the intended effect. So the reality is, it it is my opinion, it is my belief that most bodybuilders really prize side effects more than effects. I think that's why testosterone has gotten so very popular, is because Mm -hmm. it's cheap and you see it work quickly because you get a lot of side effects. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, um, I, I, fair enough. I mean, it, it sounds, you know, it, it, it. I mean, I know it sounds like Broderick is being snarky or sarcastic, and he is in a little bit. But let's face it, you're a bodybuilder. I want to get big now. That's why creatine was so popular. Dude, you, I gained seven pounds in five days. Yeah, and you can pee it out in one. You know, Anadrol has that reputation of, yeah, you'll put on 20 pounds in two weeks. And as soon as you stop using it, you'll lose 17 of them. Um, or yeah, I was going to say 19 of them, are. but sure. <laughs> but whatever. You know, like, you know, you're going to lose half of that when, when you drop the water off. And if you ever want to not look like a bloated whale, you're going to have to do that. Um, maybe worth noting, just as a random tangent, you know, when you, I, I, I having gotten a little bit more interested in the topic, it seems like a lot of what bodybuilders do, diet-wise, training-wise, it, it seems like it makes sense in one way, but it seems like I don't get this. I, I, and we talked about this, seems to be they're working their training nutrition around the drugs rather than the other way around. And the example I wanted to make is the earliest contest prep change in your drug, you went from the high androgens, which a lot of body weight, a lot of strength, and, and make no mistake, a lot of water in the joints, Keeps them healthy when you're going heavy all the time. The water, you know, you're a little bit puffy, but you're strong, you feel good. They switch from those to the more anabolic drugs. Why? So they can drop water for the contest. Like they changed to the, the non-osmotic drug pretty early on. Um, so, okay. So basically what you're saying, I think the World Anabolic Review, if you remember that book from... I do. I own it. 97, 98. That's a great book. It's, it's a little bit it, out of date now, but for the time, fantastic little German book. Yeah. Um, but but they would comment on many of those drugs. Where it's like, yeah, you know, they would quote Duchesne and some of the drug experts of, of you know, yeah. They would say, yes, people think that Anavar and Winstrol are shitty drugs, and A, they're not using it quite right, but B, you are getting a slower buildup of what amounts to more contractile tissue. You don't get that immediate, that immediate rewarding, shit, I gained five pounds today. But over time, the gains are not only higher quality, quote-unquote, I mean, it's real muscle. They're, they hang around. More permanent? Absolutely, more permanent. 
Because you're building actual protein tissue rather than just holding 10 pounds of float. Right, and, and the, te- the technical concept underneath that is there's actually the production of satellite cells and myonucleation, sure. which means that those muscle cells are there to grow at any point in the future. They're, yes. You're essentially making, quote, more muscle and certainly right. more potential for more muscle later. And it's worth noting on that point, since we've got this big clean movement, which defines folks as being two <laughs> years off drugs, these increases, this myocellular number, these myonucleotides, that increase looks to be permanent. So basically, Correct. you can use steroids for a decade, go off for two years and be clean, and you are still ahead of the game than a guy who's been lifetime natural. These changes appear to be relatively... And the myonuclei thing is also the apparent mechanism behind muscle memory, from my understanding. Correct. Absolutely. Um, because once you build those, you detrain, but when you go back to training, they're still there, so the muscle can yep. come back much more quickly. You're also probably better at training yourself. All right, so I think we've got a pretty good grasp on what the compounds are. I doubt you want to get into a laundry list of, you know, the different testosterone esters and, and stuff. Um, there is one... There is no. There is one quick thing, and it's kind of nomenclature-like mm-hmm. testosterone not actually being a steroid. But I do want to again, for the sake of having a little more knowledge of what's under the hood, I did want to make this distinction. And I don't think it really helps people in an application sense, but I think it's useful to know. Um, you have testosterone. That's the root androgen, and right. from that, there are essentially three. I'll call them families that break down in sort of a family tree fashion. If you put testosterone in the top middle, under it is direct derivations of. And those would be things like um, Dianabol. Dianabol is essentially just testosterone tweaked to be orally active. There's really not a hell of a lot of changes to the root structure. It's as close to testosterone as it can be and still be made orally active. Uh, how and why is it relevant? Just trust yeah. me on that. It's very, very similar. And then if you continue that family tree, right under it would be um, equipoise, boldenone, which is essentially dianabol tweaked to be uh, IM effective. It's it's just an esterified uh, a version of the same molecule. But okay. my point is there's testosterone and then these two immediate derivatives that are almost just like it. And then off okay. to the left and the right, you have two other families. To, let's say, the left, you have DHT families. From testosterone, the body has an enzyme that exists naturally that cleaves testosterone at a given point, changing it into a, a subcompound called dihydrotestosterone, okay. uh, which is very, very anabolic and androgenic in its own right, has its own little fancy uh, actions. Um, we don't need to really dwell on them because chemists, really yeah, smart right. people from the 40s and 50s, took that tweaked it, turned it, made it far less dangerous and far more effective. And from that, we get this whole family of DHT derivatives, and that's Primobol, Amasteron, Anivar, um, uh, Stenozolol, and, and an assortment more that I'm not going to mention because it really is a long list. Yeah, but right. all, of those, all of those are patterned actually after the DHT molecule, which is a okay. subset of the testosterone molecule. And okay. to a small degree, with the exception of Inmetal, which is a DHT derivative, they all have relatively similar characteristics in that they are uh, relatively high-quality drugs. They, they okay. bring all relatively low side effects, relatively high effects. And then all the way off on the right, we have another family 
which is the 19 Nor family. Okay. 19 is when you draw a little diagram of a molecule, there's numerological positions, and you can identify what the 19 position is, and Nor is Latin for no, it doesn't have one. And it means at the 19 position, testosterone has been cleaved. And that, too, is done by a specific enzyme, but, again, not relevant. So you have this 19 Nor family, and that is um, androlone, trendlone, a couple of weird uh, European drugs that I don't think even make it to our market anymore. So we'll just leave the list with that. Um, So anyway, and those also have, to some degree, kind of commonality uh, characteristics. They're they're family-oriented in that they behave somewhat similarly. So it's relevant to know that there's those three families and that you can kind of, um, if not predict, at least assume certain commonalities between them. Uh, I don't know if that really helps anybody, but I, I always like to point it out. I think it's useful. So is it, is it safe to say that so within a given class of hormones, you know, the testosterone, the DHT derivatives, the NORs, within a given category, their effects are more similar to each other than they Correct. are steroids in the other classes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Like I said, and there's, there's always the random chain, uh, you know, oddball, uh, for instance, you find a uh, anadrol, which is a DHT derivative, actually behaves considerably more like a, a 19 nor. Um, it's okay. really the most obvious example, and I don't know why that is. But other than that, yes, they're all very much more alike themselves than they are the other categories. Agreed. And, and, and just just for listeners, again, this is just like more semantic background. Broader, what are you talking about? We're getting into a bunch of organic chemistry. We're getting into... <laughs> The structure of the steroid molecule, which typically has 17 carbons in a ring structure, because it comes from cholesterol. And actually, random note, if you read a book called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, my favorite book, there's a section, there's a whole lot going on. The plot is that uh, a very evil man is using uh, a steroid molecule to basically hijack people's brains. And they get this nerdy guy, and they're using a, a, a receptor that picks up on this, and they find people that were using testosterone. And they refer to it as, as the Ring of Seventeen, which I think would make ah. either a great band name or a great religion. I think we should <laughs> our religion of the Ring of Seventeen. And he does actually mention accurately that steroids have the ability to translocate through the cell membrane and have these effects. Uh, within within the cell, which is why they're which is really you know for a sci-fi author to actually get that right was pretty damn cool. But I just, I love the Ring of Seventeen terminology just because I like I like. But anyway, so what he's saying is that like the nineteen Nors, they've broken a bond at the number nineteen. This is all a bunch of deep organic chemistry bullshit. Nobody cares about except steroid nerds <laughs> and organic chemists, and but it affects how various enzymes within the cell, the one that converts to DHT, the one I think we should talk about, which is aromatase, which converts steroids to estrogen. This is another big, important topic to discuss. Um, it is. That, that this and is my pet subject. I said, and my pet subject. I could fucking uh, rant and rave about that. Every intelligent steroid person I know, estrogen is their pet subject because there's such a gross misunderstanding of people hate estrogen. Women hate estrogen. Men, and because in the same way, like Broderick said earlier, on the, the testosterone is the androgenizing hormone that makes little boys into men. Estrogen, and to a lesser degree, progesterone, which is a whole different thing, is the feminizing hormone. It builds breast tissue. It builds hips. 
it is involved, but not in the way people think, in lower body fat cells. Women hate estrogen because of the menstrual cycle and lower body fat. Men hate estrogen because the idea of being less masculine is anathema to us. It's just so... <laughs> Some steroids we know can, or, or, or we, we know that one of the big issues with, with steroids, with anabolics of at least certain kinds, and this is probably related to some of the water retention and stuff, is because of conversion to estrogen. If you want to get into, and I doubt you do, it, it's called aromatase, which literally, again, an organic term, it aromatizes. I don't mean in that it makes it smell good. This is an organic terminology that testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, all these compounds have very similar ring structures, all made from cholesterol, different enzymes in the body that are reductases and stuff. Testosterone can be converted to estrogen within many cells. So that clearly happens. What are the consequences, like from a side effect or whatever effect? And is this fear over Raising and, and you know bodybuilders got into anti-estrogens blockers oh. and, and Novadex blocks the estrogen receptor used for breast cancer and again drugs that were medically developed in bodybuilders. Went, Aha! Estrogen is bad. I want an anti-estrogen. Is estrogen quote unquote bad? You mentioned the 19 nors. You know, do the different categories of drugs have different conversion to estrogen? Does this affect how well or how poorly they work? And is this involved in just any of the effects? Ah. Oh. Well, yeah, right. Absolutely, absolutely, it does. Um, as a rule, the reason the two side categories, the DHT derivatives and the uh, 19 nors, were created one because they were just found and clever starting points, and that's basically right. how all chemistry is pursued. Sure. It's a discovery and then a tweaking thereof. Um, having said that, um, DHT derivatives are what's called pre-derived. They, by, by their actual manufacture, they've been pre-derived or pre-altered before they're applied to the physiology. So, DHT-derived drugs cannot in any way convert back into DHT. So, they're essentially past the bad stage, if you will. And okay. so, there's no chance they'll convert to DHT. And because of their truncated structure not being the entire testosterone, they cannot, or in some cases... Uh, maybe not cannot, but very poorly convert to estrogen. So you've got a drug that essentially is the best of all worlds. It's not going to convert to estrogen. It's not going to convert to DHT. It's only going to do what it was intended to do. So they're very stable, predictable, and to a large degree, I'll use the term idealized steroids. Um, the ones in the middle, the, uh, yeah, correct, again, theoretically, and actually I take issue with that theoretically because I apply them all the time and get exactly the effects I want. I don't understand what all the hubbub is about, but maybe we'll get into that when we deal with some practical application. Um, I, I, what, the, sorry, what I meant by theoretically idealized is to the, to the simple understanding, anabolic good, DHT bad, correct. estrogen correct. bad, ergo, this is the perfect anabolic. Correct. Yeah, agreed. So we know agreed. That, way. that that is okay. a that is a good distinction. Agreed. And then the ones yeah. in the middle, the, uh, the for instance, Dianabol and and uh, Boldenone, they are altered in such a way that they have a resistance to the conversion of DHT and estrogen, but not to the same degree. I think the established fact figures are about they they convert over to estrogen about fifty percent as readily as the original okay. testosterone, which is an improvement, but it's not the same as the other category. And then again, when you move to the right and you get into the 19 nors, 
there, again, they, it's a truncated starting position, starting yeah. structure in such a way that they are not able to convert over into estrogen or DHT. So, again, okay. there's I'll, I'll call the, the DHT, or the, uh, the rather, the, uh, the 19 North family quasi-idealized because they come with some of their own problems. Uh, pretty much any time you find uh, sexual dysfunction or really bad personality modifications, it's almost always the culprit of a 19 nor. Um, okay. Trembolone just makes people fucking angry, and uh, Nandrolone sure. tends to make people fucking impotent. Um, sure. So maybe maybe sure. not fully idealized. Do build a buttload of muscle. Some of the best bodybuilders you've ever laid eyes on were loaded right. to the gills with those particular drugs. Um, so, yes, the structure radically influences the secondary characteristics of the anabolic compound. Not a question. Um, I think the rider on your original question is, is this ridiculous fear of estrogen valid? Um, yes. And in my simple answer to that, and we can get as complex and delve into it as much <laughs> as you want, but my simple answer is, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, to a to a large degree, estrogen is uh, very health preserving. Um, right. Low low estrogen environments are the environments where you find cardiac dysfunction, where you find blood lip skewed blood lipid profiles. Sure. All of the basically bad stuff you can say about steroids typically involve a low estrogen environment and not um, a a what I would call a parity. The human body is designed to operate on certain paired levels. This much testosterone yields this much estrogen. And as long as that ratio is the same, your health is relatively stable. It's when you skew that ratio that things go apeshit. So estrogen is very health-preserving. Now, it does have some negative impacts to the cosmetic appearance of a person, and that's where bodybuilders tend to go wrong. But my argument to that is most bodybuilders never get on stage and even the good ones only get on stage a handful of times a year. Yeah. You know, probably yeah. once a year, yeah, but probably only a handful of times in their career. So really that's not the big concern people make it out to be. Uh, oh. Bodybuilders, I think, unfortunately pay too much attention to their day-to-day cosmetic yeah. appearance and not nearly enough to their career-long cosmetic appearance. Or health, and it's, it's funny. Uh, again, or health. Again, going back to Dan Duchesne, who listeners may, he was an early steroid guru, probably one of the smartest guys in this field, especially he Absolutely. wasn't, he was working so early from trial and error, he was intuitive in a way that, that some people, he was, he was in the, but anyway, he, he, he commented, I believe, in Body Opus, he talked about making the switch from these androgenic water retaining drugs, you know, the bodybuilders would do this 8 to 12 weeks out, so they would look better, right? They would lose the water retention. And his point was it's probably better to keep the high androgens in till later. It keeps your joints healthy. Dehydration, dehydrated joints under heavy loads and overtraining are not a good thing. He's like, you can drop them two weeks out to drop the water, and looks only matter on competition day. Like, to Agreed. your point, bodybuilders go fucking nuts. They're 12 weeks out and go, dude, I'm looking bloated. You, you've got... I've heard of people that start taking even herbal diuretics 10 weeks out. <laughs> what in the fuck are you doing? Two days, yep. maybe five, if you're really messing up. It's like, why? Yes, it helps you to track the diet, and it helps you to not be neurotic, but telling a bodybuilder not to be neurotic is like telling a dog to be a cat. I mean, it's just like, good yep. luck. Doesn't work. Doesn't um, work. But, yeah, it's Agreed. Like they, I agree. They're so te- They're so crazy about looking day-to-day great. It's like the 12 weeks out, 
don't worry about the worry about this for final two. Well, but anyway, well, I can. I, I, at some point, we'll probably either in this conversation or maybe in a jump to later, we'll talk uh-huh. about practical application. But just because you've brought it up more two or three times, kind of you know, just in around our regular conversation, I actually pursue the entire endeavor essentially what other people would call backward. Rather than this bloated, fucking god-awful mess in the off-season, and then switching to leaner, cleaner, drier, quote, stupid rabbit ears, drier drugs, like the contest approach, I actually like the exact opposite approach. Wow, interesting. Take take real live, God-given, man-created fucking anabolics in the off-season, eat a bunch of food, train with nice tension and a good lifestyle, and build real live muscle. And okay. then, as the contest approaches, when your calories are going to shit and you're withering away, bring in more and more androgenic drugs to fill the gap and keep ah. your body weight up, keep your joints healthy, and allow you to perform like a real-life human being right up until the yeah. contest. And then, possibly attenuating the drugs right before the contest to get really dry, or possibly implementing a little bit of diuretic to get dry. Sure. But why... Why, at the time when you know you're going to be underfed and overtrained, would you right. want to take the least supportive drug possible? That's sure. fucking retarded. No, but again, I, I agree. They're bodybuilders. Yeah. They're bodybuilders. That's the way they think. Oh, I'm emaciated and look like a dying Ethiopian. I must Perfect. be fucking shredded. No, yeah. you're a fucking idiot. It, it, That's what you are. Totally off, totally off topic, just because it's funny, and I know you. I know you've read it. Every once in a while, I get into my archives. Have you read Slice? By Negrete you know, Jade and absolutely, it's got it's got this it's, it's it's a book that's you know it's got a lot of goofy shit in it, but it's got some good stuff too, like all these books. And they presented this hierarchy, this eight stage hierarchy from I think it was Full House to Cut to Lean to Written. It was like they just had these really detailed, you know, how at this point you look good in clothes, but and okay from a distance and shitty up front, and then you'll look shitty in clothes, but amazing up front and, and all this. And at this point, you can hold this. You're two pounds over. Like, if you want to know why bodybuilders are just a bunch of neurotic crazies, just read this book because they're sitting there going, I have to meet eight eight things on this checklist to make the next stage of contest prep. There's a, you know, and, of course, the craziness leads them to come up with this stuff. It's like I'm one and a half pounds and I'm carrying, uh, ugh, it's just, yeah. I mean, what what you're saying makes perfect sense. I think it's worth noting that Broderick is talking about bodybuilders. Correct. Performance athletes, totally different ballgame, right? You don't Absolutely. get water going into your competition season. You don't get to take drugs that the, the weight room is such a different training environment than track sprinting, than sports where you have to move your body weight up a hill. You know, Ben Johnson, Charles Francis would talk about, you know, they used low-dose Dianabol. They didn't want bloat. They didn't want muscle stiffness because muscle stiffness plus a 10-second hundred equals a hamstring pull. Like, people forget this, and that's the right tool for the right job. What you do with a power lifter would be... If he's a weight class, that's different than a super heavyweight. A super heavyweight wants to walk in with 30 pounds of blow, because guess what? He'll be stronger. And less mobile, which is actually a And less mobile. His gear will be tighter, and guess what? He doesn't care what he looks like. He cares how much he lifts. A bodybuilder is different. A cyclist, they don't want muscle growth. When you have to climb a mountain, extra weight hurts. Nope. They want 
recovery. They use low-dose anabolics to recover from their training, but they don't. They use a lot of EPO for blood volume. They use cortisone for pain. Like, every sport has its own ideal protocol that is not as simple as take a gram of testosterone a week. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some drugs promote the retention of uh, creatine phosphate and carbohydrates more than others. Sure. And those drugs would be very valuable to a long-term endurance, you know, a very glycotic athlete like, a, sure. oh, let's say a Tour de France guy. A Tour de France guy would very much abuse, like you said, yeah. low-dose testosterone or even dietable. Okay. Get, and getting back to, you know, you mentioned the medical thing. One use of a lot of these drugs was to treat anemia, was to treat low Absolutely. blood cell count. Well, guess what? Endurance athletes, that's why they use EPO. Raising blood cell count within limits, fantastic. Even for bodybuilders, guess what happens Correct. when you diet? You lose blood volume, you can't get a pump, you're not veiny. Well, if you're taking the right drugs and helping to rebuild red blood cells, you can maintain a pump. You can maintain vitality. Iron is involved in thyroid vitality, or uh, all this stuff ties in. But again, it's, matter. It's, it's drug protocols are not just take a gram of testosterone a week. Um, yeah. You mentioned something just a second ago. Well, hang on. Okay. Are we done with estrogen? Are we done with estrogen? Um, do, you, do, do you want to cover more? There's, there's an infinite amount more. Something oh, that yeah. just jumped to my mind we might want to mention about estrogen when we were talking about it being good for health and good for all that. Most males have absolutely no idea that estrogen, estrogen, folks, is the major mediator of your beloved libido. Most people don't know that. Every single time your cock gets hard, that's actually the female side of things mediating that. So just take that to heart. Consider that the next time you start choking down your damned aromatase enzyme inhibitors. But anyway. And and listeners may have heard, you know, certain drugs are notorious for, you know, decadic is a thing. Decadic. Whatever. Uh, yes, Nandrolone derivatives. Yes. Which, is, which is one of the norms, right? You said doesn't Absolutely. To estrogen. You skew the testosterone to estrogen ratio. You may look great and get big, but how, how, why, why do you want to look great to get chicks if you can't get an erection? It, it's fairly self-defeating. Um, it's like naturals who want to, like, I want to diet to 8% to get abs. Yeah, you've got abs and you're hot, but your dick doesn't work. So exactly yep. how does it help regardless? Um, what about estrogen and muscle growth? Is estrogen involved in the actual growth process from anabolic steroids? It, it definitely is. Um, even even on a receptor target tissue level, it definitely is. Um, however, it, it is my firm belief that the largest impact that estrogen has on the whole anabolic cycle is something Dr. Colgan talked about back in the, God, I don't know, Early yeah. 90s, and that yes, is estrogen is the prime influencer of the conversion of growth hormone to the relevant growth factors like IGF-1 and MGF and IGF-2 and all the cool shit that's now coming to life. Most of that shit requires, keyword fucking requires, the presence of estrogen for the liver to properly convert it into the necessary growth factors. So an awful lot of these people that are stomping around saying they spent $1,000 on growth hormone and it didn't do shit is largely because they were intentionally suppressing estrogen at the same time and therefore making that growth hormone moot. Um, Estrogen is very, very relevant. Again, being a biologist, I always think back to 
a natural state. Even when I'm talking about unnatural pharmacology, talk about a natural yeah. state. Women, little girls, little children, little androgynous templates turn into these grown. Key word is fucking grown. These creatures, you know, quadruple in size. They quadruple in mass. They fucking grow. Largely under the influence of growth hormone and fucking estrogen. Right. If estrogen was not valuable in growth, we wouldn't have grown women. We'd have fucking dwarves. Which, sure. I mean, might make a good porno now and then, but it's not relevant. It's just not. Right. And I, I only know, you know, I've, I have been working on this insane women's book, is estrogen is critical for remodeling of muscle. It's anti-inflammatory. It does have Absolutely. many, many, many health benefits. Women go through uh, menopause and stop producing estrogen. Everything basically goes wrong. Um, Correct. Women with polycystic ovary syndrome that have high androgens and low estrogen, that causes how I get say It goes on and on and on and on. And I know they found early on, Bodybuilders who started taking anti-estrogens in the off-season didn't grow, or they grew much. Didn't grow nearly as fast. Absolutely. Um, Regardless. So um, this. Okay. So well, here's here's a fairly obscure question. Given that benefit of estrogen, would you ever want to either make a drug or give a male estrogen while on cycle? Would that actually I mean, at this point, you're elevating estrogen above what the body would produce the aromatase. Would that be a good thing, or would it just make him have boobies and hips? Um, chances are, the best avenue, in, in my opinion, the best avenue is to simply let the body do what it does. And that is, generates the aromatase enzyme, and then uses that to cleave testosterone and make Essentially, the amount of estrogen, again, dumb little rabbit ears, that it wants. Um, is that a perfect scenario? No, it isn't. But my, it's my suspicion that that's probably the, the most reliably modulated method. Because, again, when you put the drug in the hands of the athlete, shit always goes haywire. You know, oh, well, you know, 500 milligrams seems to make me feel great. So I'll take 9 grams and see what happens. And, and then, sure. you know, then... Then you wind up with weird, you know, cross-sexed what the fuck ever's, you know, just okay. you know, right. chicks with a double D rack and a mustache and shoulders like mine, and you're just like, I don't even know what that is. But okay, actually, but I, just, so in that actually way, I just described women's bodybuilding. That's freakish. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. Moving, moving on. Uh, okay, so kind of related to that, right? A lot of the conversion of testosterone to estrogen happens in fat cells. There are aromatases found elsewhere, but now, is it possible, right? So we know that some conversion of testosterone to estrogen is clearly a good thing, probably an optimal Correct. thing. Correct. that you wouldn't want to jack up estrogen too high. Would there be a situation where perhaps the male bodybuilder was carrying excess body fat? Would that produce, and that which means more fat means more aromatase, potentially, means more potential conversion to estrogen. Could you reach a point where... That was hurting more than helping. Absolutely. And coincidentally, your your friend and mine, uh, Dan Duchesne, uh, again, talking about his incredible intuitiveness, always said that steroids work better on leaner athletes. And yeah. the reason for that was he was dead right. And the reason for that was leaner athletes possess smaller stores of body fat and therefore smaller reservoirs of aromatase and they get less conversion to estrogen. Because, as you said, some very good. A whole lot, probably not that good. So, 
this bulked up, giant, fat ass, body quasi powerlifter, bodybuilder attitude that goes on the world around is a shit idea. Right. So Which there is, you I, I think I think I swear to God, I remember Fred Hatfield. I think who's <clears throat> another very 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 smart guy. I seem to recall him at least suggesting it theoretically. And it was interesting, you know, back in the early days of bodybuilding, guys would just bolt. I mean, they would just get big. Um, and then they would lean down for a contest with drugs, and everything was, was good. And that kind of went away. I don't know when exactly, probably late 70s, early 80s, you started to see Agreed. guys get leaner in the off-season. And that's probably, and that's exactly why. Because the other thing to consider for, for listeners, right, if you convert X to Y, if you convert testosterone to estrogen, not only do you have more estrogen, but you have less testosterone. Um, if that oh, absolutely. Then, turned into something else, and so it's not only, it's even changing the ratio more profoundly than one might think. If you have one molecule of testosterone, and normally you convert whatever, let's say you have 10 molecules of testosterone, and you normally convert 2 to estrogen, well now you have 8 to 2, but it's now you're converting 5 to five of those molecules, not only do you have 5 of estrogen, 3 more, you've only got 5 of testosterone left. You skewed the ratio from 4 to 1 to one-to-one, and if you, for whatever easy-ass reason, converted eight of the testosterone, now you've got two testosterone left and eight estrogens. Now you're one-to-four, so clearly there's a a tipping point. Do we know what that tipping point is? Is there a body fat percentage above which anabolic users should not go? Um... I think there honestly is. Uh, actually, a good friend of mine uh, and, and, and an acquaintance of yours, I don't know if I'd stretch to always say a good friend of yours, but uh, Dr. Mike, is- Mike Isertel and I were just talking about that very subject. And, okay. and he's a wicked smart guy. I love him to death, but I tend mm-hmm. to think he shoots um, the number a little low. He thinks that 15% is about as fat as a, a bodybuilder should ever get. And honestly, I think that's uh, unnecessary. I personally put the number at 20. I think okay. 20 is a very workable number. I think you can maintain 20 without breaking your neck. I think okay. you can get lean from 20 without breaking your neck. Um, I think 20 is a... Uh, agree. I think 20 is a very sensible number. Um, I think anything between 20 and 10 is kind of the athletic human range. Anything below yeah. 10 is kind of forced and unnatural. And anything over 20 is you're getting a little fucking pudgy. So, yeah. you know, dial it into there. Um, he personally uses 15 as his number. And I, I think he's constantly doing himself a slight injustice. Um, yeah. And, and I, I say that with all due loving respect. Because, I, I mean, yeah. the guy's really fucking smart, way more pedigreed than me, and he's absolutely entitled to his opinion. I just can say honestly and publicly that I think he's a little more conservative than I would be. I would ramp up the calories, stomp the hammer down, and continue on this little rant. I think when shit's going well, you just really don't actually get that fat. I think you get up around 18 and then shit just kind of drizzles out because your muscle mass overwhelms the uh, the calorie surplus. I really believe that, but it's a separate subject. But anyway, there you go. (laughs) And I think, I honestly, I think a lot of that goes back to your comments about bodybuilders and athletes in general. Let's face it, we're all a little body obsessed, you know. Whether you want to be jacked or lean or both, lean guys want to be lean. And 
above 15, the abs in big boys and leaner guys above 15, you look pretty bad. But in big boys above 15, you can still have abs or at 15. Absolutely. Above that, I I, I am a walking example of that. And yeah. the average person will look at you and go, "Dude, you look good," and you'll look in the mirror and go. I'm a fat sack of shit, and yeah. I think that's where a lot of this comes from, is just yeah. the general neurosis yeah. among You the know, it, it, it's funny what you just mentioned, because, you know, you take somebody at 180 pounds and 15% body fat, you look at them and they're like, eh, whatever. You take somebody 240 and 15% body fat, you're like, whoa, that's nice. Um, yeah. it's, it's interesting how that same percentage can be so radically skewed based on Underlying muscle. Um, um, I would say, and women do the same thing. I see so many women, absolutely. and they're just like, they want to like, they're like, I want to stay 18%, like, you're not going to gain any muscle, because you can't, nope. you can't gain, or even do, do little, little guys, like, you can't gain any weight. Dude, you got to not, you got, you, you can't have a full six pack if you want to get big. You can't. Yeah. I don't give a shit about all this lean, bulking crapola. You change that at best. You will always grow faster if you allow some fat I'm not talking turn into a eat donuts every night. I'm talking about the pint of ice cream, the, the McCallum get good drink. But if you were allowing small gains in body fat, it means you're eating enough to support. And if you're training enough, you spend most of it to muscle anyway. So get over it. Absolutely. You know, um, we, we talked about this when you did your fucking fabulous talk on, on, on weight gain. Let me tell yeah. you, boys and girls, just in, just in case you're not really on board with the, what, what, what Lyle's saying right here, let me tell you, if you eat real food, I mean, honest to God, real live food, you're eating fucking rice and carrots and spinach and fucking chicken, you gotta eat a fucking bunch of food to get fat. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. gotta, you gotta fucking try. Yeah, yeah. you can get oh, fat yeah. as shit on candy bars and cheeseburgers, but if you're sure. eating real home cooked, quote, bodybuilding food, you gotta yeah. eat like an asshole to get fat. Yeah. Yeah, just just want to put that out there because people don't understand that. You want to that. do the, the elite fitness, eat a pizza in a sitting, eat a milky. We didn't didn't oh, somebody in elite sake. fitness. They're like, I had to get my body weight up, so I just started eating like four, uh, like two Milky Ways every, it's like two candy bars an hour just to keep my insulin level check to get the calories. In. Like, okay. It would be my fantasy. It would be my fantasy if Dave Tate would actually just die of being an idiot. That would that would literally make me smile for the rest of my fucking days. But that's yeah. not gonna happen. Anyway, he's gonna fucking so, he's gonna live longer than fucking God and be crippled and fucking yeah. jabber on about it. But anyway, okay. So I think we covered that sufficiently. Some estrogen good, too little estrogen bad. Too, which is funny. You look at most biological things. The old inverted U-shaped curve. There's a happy yep. medium to everything. Too much bad, too little bad. Find that that midline. Okay, so getting back to the the classes of steroids, clearly they do have slightly different effects, but they're all correct. Ultimately, derivatives of the same thing, right? Different, absolutely, whatever. Different forms, different derivatives of testosterone. Sometimes it's injectable with different. Uh, durations of action based on what side chain there is. It could be an Correct. oral, which does its own thing, which tends to be very short-lived to the liver, the DHT blockers, in that these all have similar effects. Yes. In, in, in a simplistic sense, it doesn't seem that, seems like any drug in, in the sense of, like, let's say you want testosterone. You want anabolic sex, you want androgenic sex. You, you want to get it done. Would there, why do people take more than one form of that compound? Like, you mentioned briefly <laughs> some some raise creatine phosphate, some have slightly different effects. And if the if the listeners are confused, that that key lock analogy, 
is not perfect, right? We know that one key fits into one lock in the real world. In the biological world, hormones, hormones of slightly different structure can bind relatively better or worse. They talk about receptor affinity. It, it gets into really complex three-dimensional molecular shapes that, trust me, you don't want to get into. You can get cofactors <laughs> and co-repressors and co-stimulators. You, you can drive yourself nuts. All you need to know is that multiple keys fit into the same lock, but they fit a little bit differently. And which Correct. Some of the differences in effect outside of the categories. But, but given that, given that these drugs are all essentially similar, why does combining them matter or work? Well, let me answer that again in my seemingly famous way of being being a little oblique and talking to the side. Um, consider okay. a separate class of drugs. Consider antibiotics. Okay. They all do exactly the same thing. They inhibit the reproductive ability of bacteria. They all do it, and they all do it essentially in exactly the same way. Yet, medical science has borne out the, the reality that a given antibiotic seems to affect a given bacteria better than others. You have a class of antibiotics that are very good for respiratory infections, some that are very good for uh, dental infections, and so on. Now, granted, okay. you can take any garden variety antibiotic, and if you take enough of it, it will probably kill the infection you have. But it has been found, just because of quirks of chemistry and the human genome, and the way they interact, that certain antibiotics are superior to treat certain infections. You have exactly the same scenario with anabolics. They all essentially do exactly the same thing and essentially in exactly the same way. However, just quirks in the genome and quirks in chemistry have bore out the reality that given drugs have slightly superior implications in a given avenue. Okay. And that's really the reality of all the subtlety of anab anabolics. Now, asking why practical application, why you might take this over that or combine this over that, um, first of all, the reality is most people's drug combinations either revolves around one of two factors. Either it's what they can get, therefore sure. it's what they're going to take, or it's a combination someone they know and trust used and they're going to follow it. Those are yeah. the realities. Now, being the, quote, I'm the, the, quote, expert of the day, how or why would I choose compounds? Yeah. I would choose them in more of a fashion where I would look at the athlete's wants or needs. You need, because you're an MMA fighter, you need a low body weight, relative high force production, and lots of recovery. Well, yeah. I would look at you and say, all right, that is definitely not big, bulky 19 Nortite drugs that are going to weigh you down with this additional body weight and additional water and what have you. So I would say, how about a little bit of testosterone because it's nice and rounded and kind of yeah. meets all of those in a very general fashion. And then okay. let's supplement that with something that's going to give you some aggression and additional recovery, like let's say Anavar. That's going to give you right. a little bit of aggression because it has an androgenic action and it's going to give you lots of... Contractile protein yep. and recovery. That okay. would, to me, would be a very effective way. But it's a matter of plug and play, choosing the need or determining the need, and then choosing the most appropriate thing to. I almost think of it as like um, like treating an illness. Your illness is ill recovery, so I'm going okay. to treat that with this compound. Or your or or a scenario like um, let's use bodybuilders we know. I don't think I'm throwing them under the bus. I think the whole world knows Lee Haney took fucking drugs. Uh, um, 
team naturally was just a very skinny little basketball player-esque type of physique. He needed lots of retention. His physique would have been nothing without Anadrol and and and, and, and okay. Nandrolone. He was he required that retentiveness to fill out that big long structure with all of that surface area. So again, his choice in drugs was very um, predetermined by his by his very own physiology. You know, and I don't know if it's better in this to focus on body. I don't again, I don't know what the specific listenership is, but you know, so let's say we're talking about a bodybuilder. You'll see sure. things like. Use testosterone as a base. Use like an injectable testosterone, which tends to give a very long-acting effect, depending. And then you add other things. I think one of my favorite quotes by Duchesne was, "If you can't grow on what was it, 200 milligrams of Deca and uh, 50 milligrams of Dianabol, you can't grow on anything." Um, Probably true for the beginner. I would I would pretty much identify with that. There is in in this whole concept of, you know, what drugs to choose, there's two things I'd like to say. One is you can literally just close your eyes and reach and grab, and any drug you touch will make you bigger, stronger, and more muscular. There's really not a bad, a quote, bad one in the bunch. Um, that, that seems to be lost. People have this really predetermined preferential attitude that this one's great, that one's shit, and this, and, and that's just stupid. It's just not okay. true. These drugs have been around, uh, coming up on a fucking century. <laughs> they work. There's none yeah. of them that don't work. If they didn't work, they wouldn't be around anymore. Sure. People need to get that through their fucking head. Right. Um, and then secondly, the number one implicator in efficacy and in how well something works ultimately is dosage. Again, you know, people just don't seem to understand that. Um, let's say uh, kind of a, like, you, you personally work with all these natural guys. Let's say one of your natural guys came forward and said, you know, I think I want to jump in. I want to take some drugs. I want to see how big I can get. It's important to have a concept of what is a necessary dose to treat that condition and what would be an, an exorbitant or absurd dose. Um, so I think we can just start there and just say, that about five milligrams per kilogram weekly is a dose that will make anyone grow and is almost certainly not dangerous. I think that's just a sensible little piece of information to take home. You know, if you've never used drugs, now granted, like, I personally need more than that, but I personally have been taking drugs for 25 years, and I'm on 200, 240 pounds. It's a little different. But if the 180-pound natural guy with a pretty good physique wants to get Get rolling, as it were. Five milligrams per kilogram weekly of almost anything will fucking do the trick. And, you know, in case you're having trouble with the math, that's four or five hundred milligrams, folks. That's not a lot. Yeah. And just as a, as a quick side note, and this is a, a whole different rant in and of itself that you and I could probably do for an hour, right? You know, people, there's a lot of people, and I won't name names, and it's very uncommon, who will defend this stance of, you know, the drugs only help a little. Oh, or fuck's sake. Still, and, uh, and here's the thing. Flat out, it's bullshit. Um, Absolutely. One of, the, one of the classic studies, and I actually just came across another one I need to email to you, found that 600 milligrams a week of testosterone, researched by a guy named Basin, he's done some dose response stuff, and he gave 600 milligrams a week. Now, and listeners need to realize that while that might be a big dose for a beginner, there are guys taking a gram a day, right? Sports yes. and all of nuts. So you read his books, you're just yep. like, Holy shit, three sessions on 250 a week for a beginner? Like, are you effing kidding me? The guy was a maniac. 
because there's always got to be that one crazy dude in this industry. Absolutely. Uh, That's how he made his weight. 600 milligrams a week of testosterone for 20 weeks, put something like 10 kilos, 22 pounds of lean body mass. Now, it wasn't all muscle. There was some water weight. He found that their strength went up, that they actually increased fiber size. But here's the thing. They weren't even training, right? This yep. is what there's – and there's other work where they've done training only, steroids only, training plus steroids. Training steroids by themselves built more muscle mass than training. The training now, plus steroids were, was it was additive, but the reality is to gain 10 pounds of lean body mass in 20 weeks, most naturals would kill to gain that in a year. Agreed. And that's what these guys put on with no track, right? So this, uh, I, I came across another paper recently, and it was referenced in this the most ridiculous thing I've read in a while, arguing that the difference in muscle mass between women and men is not due to differences in testosterone levels. It's one of the stupidest papers I've ever read in my life because you've got to be <laughs> fucking joking. Regardless. I know. I'll send it to you. It's hilarious. Uh, it's a political thing about testosterone cutoffs in sport. It's a whole political agenda piece with some really, really bad analogies. Anyway, I cited a paper that I went and looked up, and it looked at long-term steroid users versus naturals. Like, steroid users have been uh-huh. on for decades. At, at two kilos lower body weight, right, they were five pounds lighter, four and a half pounds lighter, these steroid users had 33 pounds more muscle. 33, that is, a, that is a career goal for a lot of naturals. They were lighter. Agreed. Had 33, that means, yeah, means the naturals had 33 pounds more fat. Yeah. Anybody who says drugs only work a little is trying to make it sound like, you know what, I train like a monster. I train like an animal. The drugs, and why, really? Arnold was 220 at his best. You are 280 pounds ripped. You're telling me training, your training is that much more on point. Your nutrition is mm-hmm. bullshit, son. It's the drug. Yep. And anyone who thinks different I, is fucking cracked. I, I agree. Um, again, so uh, you, I, 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 you know, on the periphery, I try to stay out of these things, but there's an ongoing, you know, debate among internet yahoos about how much uh, drugs influence the powerlifting totals. What would powerlifting totals be if there was no drugs? The reality is there'd be no fucking powerlifting if there wasn't drugs. It, it yeah. would be a, a fucking goofy, unknown sport like fucking downhill sand snowboarding or whatever the fuck that thing is where the idiots slide down sand hills on sticks. It, it wouldn't be a fucking thing. There wouldn't, no one would have the slightest interest in it if there was truly natural powerlifting. There'd be like nine really big fat guys, and no one else. No one would give a fuck. Yeah, and it's it, well, it, you know, even when you look at when that sport developed, and this is something else people don't realize, right? They like to look at these early '50s bodybuilders. When was Diana Ball first synthesized? <laughs> Roughly, um, '58, I believe, is the number that they're really uh, di- dialing right. in. Is it was and commercially anybody, produced in '58? Yeah. Anybody who thinks that these athletes in the '60s. These early bodybuilders, these early Olympic lifters, anybody who thinks that they weren't using a little bit is out of their mind. They're foolish. There is no, again, you have to go back again. to the 20s and 30s and look at those guys, and they're nowhere close to what even guys But not only like. that, even they are undershooting it. Again, testosterone was identified sure. in the 1880s, and it was being um, not – there's a little bit of debate on the terminology, but – um, most really grand scientific uh, advances follow behind the creation of a diagnostic tool. 
you know, the discovery of planets followed behind the creation of uh, sure. mill-glass mil telescopes. You, right. you wouldn't have been able to find planets without telescopes, so telescopes led the way. So, you know, that sort of thing. Well, the laboratory centrifuge was developed in the 1890s, 1880s. And immediately behind that, every Yahoo in the world that had a little bit of money and thought they were a gentleman chemist spun everything. Milk, right. pond water, toilet water, and sure. strangely, dog urine. And right. if you spin dog urine at just the right speed for long enough, this odd yellow crystal distills from it. And you know what that is, boys and girls? Well, guess what? They didn't either. But they figured out that if you inject it back into the dog, the dog gets bigger and more aggressive. Guess what they found? Testosterone! Before the turn of the 20th fuck century, folks. So anytime anybody gives you that, well, Babe Ruth had a bunch of fucking home runs, if he didn't take testosterone, how do you know? You don't fucking know. Because testosterone was there, and it was available, and maybe he did. So fuck off. Yeah, babe. But anyway. I mean, that's just that, that is that is the reality. I mean, they may they may not have come into super prevalent use. Like I remember having a discussion with um, uh, oh Christ, I cannot believe I'm forgetting. Uh, you love the listening coach, Glenn uh, Pendley. Pendley. And you know, football players were already abusing anabolics, amphetamines, cocaine in the seventies. Anybody? Who oh, in the sixties. In the sixties, been natural. For the last 50 years, again, it's just even the powerlifting session. Everyone's like, "Oh, West Side is bands and chains and all this bullshit new training technology," and that's great. Why are raw powerlifting numbers stagnant? It's all gear. Yep. And by gear, I mean shirts and suits and like this is all great. The naturals are using it. The the, the raw gear lifters are using it. Nobody's getting stronger because naturals are at the genetic limit. Absolutely. For a couple of decades, yeah, when they absolutely. started drug testing the tour, that the, the next year, everybody got slower. Now, are you genuinely yeah. going to tell me, are you genuinely going to argue that somehow training and nutrition got worse in 2015 than it has been for the last 20 years? Your answer is small. No, they weren't using EPO anymore, and that's 10% on your power output. Like, all this, this whole thing is just... And admittedly, when you get into skill sports, I realize that, you know, and, and, and people mishear this. Well, so what you're saying is if I take drugs, I can win a gold medal. Now, I didn't say anything of the damn sort. I had a guy get in my face. He was like, well, drugs won't give you a balanced, lean physique. I didn't say they would. I said they build muscle without training. That's it. Yep. Nothing yep. more. It's not going to make you into a bodybuilder. It's not going to give you the muscle bellies. It won't give you shape. But if you, it builds muscle, that's it. I said what I said. No, it will not. If, if you're a white guy who runs a 15 second 100, no, steroids will not make you beat Usain Bolt, but it'll make you nope. faster if you're taking them. It'll make you faster if you started. That's the bottom line. And, yeah. and that's the reality. Is they, they may not make you the best, but they will clearly make you better than you are. And anyone who doesn't believe that's just fucking foolish. Yeah. And or has an agenda. That's the part that pisses me off. You can be stupid and you don't actually offend me because, you know, you're entitled to stupidity, but the people with a fucking agenda are the ones that make me angry. And usually the agenda in my mind is I want to defend my own drug use and that I train harder than anyone. I, I got a buddy who knows a guy who's like, yeah, Drugs only help a little, and my friend's like, then why do you bench 500 on and 315 off? Well, there's another, I will not name names, although I should, there's (laughs) one of the mental geniuses in our industry, 
once wrote, and he's like 280, and says, oh, I'm only on hormone replacement, once said that the reason naturals are smaller than pros is because naturals do if it fits your macros and don't train hard enough. <laughs> so, you know who I'm talking about, and it's like, you, you're you so fucking stupid and hurts. It's like, you're really going to tell me, I guarantee you 99% of naturals don't do if it fits your macros. Going to any gym, they're training hard. I've watched drug-using bodybuilders piss around with light weights and just blow the fuck up. Arnold trained his balls off, and he still was only 220. Are you really going to tell me he just, you train? Fuck you. Like, you're so dumb it hurts. You've got an yep. agenda. You're trying, and it, you just have a website that people want to believe. I just got to work harder. I just got to train harder. It's like, no, drugs beat training. I got bad news for you. Training helps, but drugs beat yeah. drugs. Well, if you look at the training acumen of most pro bodybuilders, it's appalling. Sure. They're, 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 they're mindless. Um, oh, yeah. most, most bodybuilders... I've seen pro bodybuilders of, of pedigree, people, you know, people that have walked on the Olympia stage, and I've just yeah. casually bubbled into the gym they're training in, and almost without fail, when I see them doing something, and I emphasize the word something, I can't yeah, identify right. what the fuck exercise they're doing. I look at them, is that a shrug, is that a row, is that a deadlift, what the fuck are they doing? Yeah. And, and the, the whole time... Much. And the whole time they're doing it, they're growing like a fucking weed. So, so maybe I'm the asshole, but I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. And I think you know, if you want to talk agendas, then there's the world, which doesn't want athletes. Uh, they said for years, oh, steroids don't work based on really shitty studies, and that was a political agenda. If we tell athletes the truth, they might use. Well, all that happened was the same thing as when parents tell their kids, uh, pot will make you insane. As soon as the kid yeah. tries it themselves and it doesn't work, all athletes did was go, you know what, fuck doctors. They don't know shit about shit, and I will never trust them again because they got lied to. Exactly. It exacerbates uh, the distrust. That's the yeah. uh, uh, sad part. Because... Medical professionals, like every group, they do have something to offer. It just happens not to be in information on performance-enhancing drugs, but they're still yeah. valuable people. It's still a valuable industry. It's a shame that sure. they get written off entirely by the world of sports. Yeah, but it's just, and, and you know, this is the reality of sport. You know, they, the IOC will make a big deal. Oh, we're cracking down on drugs. We caught 12 people, and it's like, and you miss the other 97%. I bet people I agree. tell me, you know what? They're, they're clean athletes in sport. I go, yeah, they are. You know what they're called? Last place. They're yeah, called yeah they're called losers. Yeah, I agree. The guys, the guys that are clean don't get caught. We know this factually. The Russians at one of the Olympics, they had a ship out there. They would drug test their athletes. And when you got a dozen guys that can make the final, you go with the guy that can pass the drug test. We know, great book, as a boy, Drug, drug politics and sport, he worked for WADA. He worked for the group that, mm -hmm. that believes this. He's like, yeah, they cheated. They would throw away drug samples of athletes that they wanted to pass. It was all corruption. The IOC wants people to think the sport is clean. You know, cycling eventually had to face it after Festina. Pro cycling was like, nope, there's only a handful of cheaters. And then Festina came out. It's like, yeah, they finally had to go, everyone's on drugs. We've known this for yeah. decades, but we, we we lose our we lose our money if athletes aren't performing. We we don't get funding. People don't watch. We can't get our like. There's there's unfortunately the economics of sports that make it. And I mean, you can't be honest. Athlete gets popped. 
He will, uh, let's see, what was that great example? Tyler Hamilton said his elevated testosterone is due to his body absorbing his unborn twin. Like, the, the excuses you get are so phenomenal. Tainted meat is a favorite. Like, there's so many in it, because what is an athlete supposed to do? Yeah, yep, I've been on for 20 years. They will deny and deny and sue and sue until finally they can't anymore. Then they'll go, I'm sorry, I was just doing what I had to do, and the team pressured me and all this other bullshit, and it's just like, yep, it's, you know, you can't be honest. What are you supposed to do? Yeah, yep, I'm using well, to, to use, you know, and we, we've belabored this, but I'll, I'll, I'll blurt this out because it's one of my favorite examples. And, and most of who I deal with on a daily basis is powerlifters or people that think they're powerlifters. And they, I well. get this incessant, you know, like, oh, the natural totals are approaching what they were on drugs back in the 80s, and it's so wonderful, and it's all because of whatever. And I here's, here's something that I'd like to point out to people. Eddie Cohn. Failed three drug tests and was banned from Oh, yeah. So, so I'm not throwing the man under the bus to say Eddie Cohn used drugs. I think he's he been pretty forthright yeah. about it. He you know, it's, it's a fact. Now, here's the thing. Here's what I want to point out. He, as an individual, and, you know, partly to his credit and partly to the credit of his parents, is the most gifted human being to yeah, right. ever have walked on a powerlifting platform. Yeah. He is designed absolutely perfectly for the sport of powerlifting. No drugs did that. There was no drugs involved. The dude just has extraordinary leverages and would literally be one of the strongest people on earth without drugs. However, he chose to take drugs. Okay, now here's my point. You have the most genetically abled person. He's very smart, very motivated, and took drugs, and he set given totals. Sure. Now, years later, we have these half-wit fucking unnatural idiots approaching and in some cases exceeding numbers that the great Ed Cohn required drugs in which to achieve, that's fucking foolish and <laughs> shameful and sh- criminally shameful that these people are telling you with a straight face that they're as capable or more so than the greatest that ever walked the earth. Fuck them. Right. They should you know, be I killed. Know. And it's like, right, show me the, pr- well, you know, yes, if you want to talk about a guy in a fed that passes a half squat with a triple ply suit, I won't disagree with you. However, like, you go get out of the monolith, you wear the gear he had, you and you show me that thou- you show me that eleven hundred pound squat done to legal death, <laughs> not in a bullshit federation with USPF legal death, yeah. And and make no mistake. if you you know, this whole thing of like, oh, we're we're surpassing the records of the 70s. Well, A, guess what? They were already using drugs, so maybe, maybe not. However, training has improved. Nutrition has improved since the 70s. There's more people in sport. We have a much larger genetic basis. This is like there's a lovely, there's a hilarious argument, which is getting way off topic. And this, this comes up about every 20 years. Um, actually, some researchers I interned with wrote a hilarious paper on this. And, um, right, so women, women started competing in the marathon seriously in about the 80s. And yeah. if you compare their rate of, of improvement, it's actually steeper than the men who had been racing since the 30s. And these, these geniuses concluded women will eventually outrun men. Exceed <laughs> Right, right, right. You've got to be kidding me. You have got – this is – I once saw a fantastic letter to the editor of a paper like this, and it was from, like, a fourth-grade science class, and it just 
own them. It was like they first need to maybe look at the reality of curves and then maybe learn something about an asymptote. There's always faster progress early on as people are figuring out the sport. 70s powerlifting was a different sport than it is now. Guys, people, unless you have a lot of older listeners, the cutting edge of gear, you put half a tennis ball behind your knee. That was your knee wrap. You wrapped yourself in a tire with, with sheets, right? This was gear. It had shitty bars, shitty unloaded weights. Guys had to squat to depth. Like, they used those shitty little benches with the narrow grips. Like, there's a, a really good video I've seen somewhere, and he's like, if you look at all the improvements in sport over the last 30 to 40 years, it's all equipment. It's like, yep. you look at the, the best. Even, there's an argument even that the 100 meter is mostly uh, the track surface. Oh, no, exactly. Um, and he showed, you know, he showed the difference. In the finish times, like if you adjust the times from the early days when they ran on a cinder track, hand time with no block, and they were running in the tens, and now the record is what nine four nine or nine five nine, and it's like yeah, but they've got a springier track, they have blocks, we have more people sprinting, we have hand, we have electronic timing, and he's like literally the difference in finish times is a heartbeat. It's like he, he yep. plotted, he, he had an audio of the final footfall, and it's like, you look at from the 20s, and it's like, that's it. That's the difference between now and 80 years ago. And yep. he, did the, he did the numbers. If you remove, you change the tracks, if you change the 400-meter running track surface to back to what it was, about 50% of the one-minute miles disappear. Yep. All the people that are now beating the, one minute, the four-minute mile, they'd be running 415, 420 on an older track. It's all yeah. equipment. Cycling is more, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we are way off topic, and I want to try to read <laughs> you. got to fun steroids and don't work a little bit, and, and as we tend to do. Okay, so we haven't established that. You can combine drugs from different classes and categories to get differential or in sometimes synergistic effects. Agreed. Now, we talked about the antigen receptor. Yep. And then we know that in, and there's, this is kind of a two-fold question, and the first one's quick and the second one's maybe less quick. We know there's a lot of cases when a, a receptor is stimulated quite frequently, it will downregulate. There will be the, the body will decrease the number of receptors and the sensitivity, like whatever. There's less of an action. You know that when people take any drug, it works great, and then it works less great. It's generally been assumed that the antigen receptor downregulates, and that's why steroids, quote unquote, stop working over time. And you either have to take less for a while, go off. Paul Borson claims to have a compound that would, what was it, reset the antigen receptor? It was something hilarious that I never yeah. died, fortunately, before I ever found out what it was. He wrote about it in one of his books, The Stacks. Uh, he supposedly had a compound that would, I don't know, Brillo the antigen receptor or something hilarious like that. But do, do antigen receptors that regulate? Is this the reason steroids, quote-unquote, stop working after 12 to 16 weeks or whatever? Um. Well, there's there's a couple of there, geez there's <laughs> yeah right well I don't know how you want me to answer that do you want me to assume that your predication is accurate that they no, do stop working after time address the predication first okay do, does the antigen well, receptor downregulate that's the easy one um, the, okay the answer to that question is no absolutely what? not they do not okay now well let me the assumption do they upregulate the, the the reality is yes. In two ways, and I'll come to that because it's part of the second answer. The assumption that they stop working over time is also wrong. 
Um, okay. Steroids are incredibly simple in their chemistry, and they're incredibly simple in their action. In terms of the grander pharmacology, other yeah. compounds are just much more complex and interactive. Um, okay. The reality is there's two reasons why the effects of drugs, uh, of testosterone and androgens, get less noticeable over time. The first is, by their very definition, what they're doing is making more muscle mass. So if you have a given amount treating a given amount of muscle mass, and then you increase the muscle mass, but don't increase the amount of drugs, you have a lower saturation over time. Okay. The the reality is, so this idea of do receptor sites upregulate, well, yes, they do, because every single new addition of muscle comes with its own structural series of receptors. So if the drug's actually working and you're building muscle, you're building muscle, which includes new receptors, and therefore you have, over time, an ever lower density of drug-to-receptor ratio. So without the dose escalating, which is ultimately what's going to happen, yes, the drug will become less effective over time because technically you're taking less drug over time in terms of a milligram-to-kilogram ratio. Okay. Okay, so that's really relevant. Then another reason why quote, drugs seem to stop working over time is because it's not just as simple as putting a key in a lock and turning it and magic muscle happens. Um, It's a complex, dynamic, biological system mediated by all fucking kinds of enzymes and all kinds of shit, and any single thing in that chain of events can simply get overtaxed and tired. And therefore, you get... You're still getting drug to receptor, you're getting nuclear transmission, you're getting this genomic response, and then, ah, fuck, the enzyme's responsible for packaging protein way downstream. Well, they're a little tired, and now you just don't get good results. It's, like everything else, the um, duration at which you can operate at maximum capacity is finite. It's limited. Okay. It doesn't matter how much drugs you take. It's not that the drugs don't work. It's that just biological systems tire over time, and you need to rest and reset. It, 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 right. It's really as simple as that. Okay. Um, which actually kind of brings me to the, the follow-up question, and this is which is kind of multifold, and which is this. So we know that there's, whatever, a relatively fixed number of androgen receptors, you know, whatever. It's receptor per gram muscle or whatever. Agreed. Let's say there's a thousand, and over time, contrary to what most people think, that number will actually increase. Um, Agreed. I actually was curious, has it ever been shown or examined, does the amount of receptor number per unit muscle, like if, you, if you're looking at the number of receptors per kilogram of muscle, does that change? Or is it, it yes, it does. Yes, it has muscle? been. Yes, it has actually been purely and cleanly documented that, the higher densities of plasma androgens actually creates a higher density of surface receptors on contractile protein. It's one of the many, again, the body, and and not just the human body, any body, any physiology, rabbits, squirrels, fucking reindeer, antelope, what the fuck ever. Gotcha. They they all have (laughs) extraordinary measures in place through evolutionary processes to try to achieve homeostasis. And okay. if you start dumping too much of something into the system, all of these clever mechanisms to bring that level down, one, conversion over to estrogen, two, conversion over to DHT. If that doesn't work, then the expansion of actual muscle mass. 
And at, at some point, there's still drugs that needs to go somewhere. The body will actually proliferate new receptors simply to get that drug out of circulation and somewhere. Okay. It, so, yes, it has been shown, you know, through, through detailed, uh, I think, radio tagging studies, but they've done it. Okay. And, yes, you can actually get more receptors per unit square area than okay. a, quote, a natural. So that brings up the follow-up question. And okay. So there have been some theoretical calculations that I know you have seen to the effect of <laughs> I, you know where I'm going with this already. I do. I so do. They basically say, and this this calls back to something you mentioned very early on, one of Borson's ideas. So we, we today we know that different drugs have slightly different effects. That's probably why they're so adjusting. But outside of that, they're all binding to the same energy receptor. There yep. have been theoretical calculations that say the body, there's only X number of receptors. Based on that, the body can only handle Y amount of, of androgens before those are saturated. And by saturated, it means they're full, right? You, you, any Correct. You've got six glasses. You pour liquid into them, and they're full, right? This is so the, the listeners kind of know what we're talking about. You can't pour more, you can pour more liquid. And maybe this is a good analogy, but it's, it's got nowhere to go. So in theory, this means that there should be a maximum dosage of steroids above which there is no greater effect. However, we know full well, we know full well that not only do athletes use doses higher than that, and that may just be because they're athletes, but we know full well higher doses above this theoretical limit have greater effect. So the paper theory, the numerical calculations, do not match with reality. Why? Correct. An assortment of reasons one would be something that I blatantly stated earlier, and that is, to a large degree, when you say, quote, athletes, you're mostly talking about very large powerlifters and bodybuilders. And right. something I said earlier is, largely, they're prizing side effects as much as effects. So when you say more dosage works better, does it actually create more myofibril contractile protein? Is it actually yeah. acted in myosin, or is it just... Mass is it you know cytoplasmic retention? Is it carbohydrates? Sure. Is it water retention? Is it all that other stuff? So you can't necessarily pick that apart and say what's what. You can say that greater doses cause greater retentions of body weight. That is an accurate statement, and it doesn't seem to really fly in the face of any physiology because okay. you could get someone to gain weight without actually gaining muscle and have it very much appear that it's muscle. However, what you're really driving at is something Dan Duchesne alluded to long before Borison, and then Borison really uh, put some science behind it, and that is the dose-response curve seems to suggest that there is mechanisms other than just the standard nuclear transmission model, that something other than drug in lock, lock turning, and, you know, yeah. the information to build muscle, something other than that is going on that is resulting in additional muscle growth. Uh, Duchesne seemed to believe that it was um, other hormones, you know, the, 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 the yet at that time un, unidentified, you know, somatropic cascade of IGF-1 and all that, and, you know, the interaction with uh, estrogen. Um, he may well have been right to some degree, but Borison then later came along and talked about the idea of a high saturation of androgens can simply translocate directly through the cell membrane with no mediator or very little mediator from the outside and impact, you know, anabolism in a more or less direct fashion. 
Okay. So this seems, this that, seems to have that's pretty relevant. Yeah, this seems to have a, a logical hole in it. I'm going to say just from a physiological background. So we know that the body clearly has this, uh, you know, secondary pathway. However, you want to look at it in terms of you know the the cell membrane uh, translocation. But why would that only be activated under high anabolic steroid doses? That's almost that's almost arguing that the body evolved to take high-dose steroids, and clearly that's absurd. Well, if the body's not going to naturally trigger this mechanism, or maybe it's a pubertal mechanism, why would it exist simply almost solely for steroids to activate that? That seems... That seems to be a problem in my head. I, I agree with you, but yet it's the only explanation that I've had presented to me that even roughly explains what we're seeing in the real world. It may turn out to be something entirely different, but it is, in my mind, the only model that is in any way explaining what we're actually seeing. Because, as you said, once all of the receptors are covered, how could there possibly be more transmission, but yet there seemingly is? Well, okay, so here's here's, a, here's maybe a follow-up to, to you know, I, I kind of have this thought in my head on this. So when we're saying higher doses, do we, do we mean higher doses of the same drug or higher doses from other category or different drugs or both? I personally don't think it matters. I've had okay. people that there's a there's a common theme in some of these right now the Middle East is a very hot spot for, you know, drug gurus and drug usage and I've they, I've heard more than a couple baby. Yeah, I've heard a couple of these Middle Eastern gurus and, and I'm not you know, there, there's no negative connotation with being Middle Eastern. Yeah. I just that's where they're fucking at. I'm just that's what yeah, I'm saying. No, I guess, I guess um, but anyway, there's this theme that um Drugs kind of have a certain threshold. Well, if you're not taking 500 milligrams in androlone, you might as well take none. I don't understand that thinking because it does. In my mind, it doesn't work that way. I don't yeah. think that the individual drug has any sort of threshold. One milligram will do something. It's just not a hell of a lot. And yeah, two works better. And three and three. Point. Uh, I said something about athletes thinking more is better, and I wasn't even thinking in terms of the result. Athletes think more is better. <laughs> If some is good, more is better, because that's what more means. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember that idiot. I remember that idiot. Mike Menster saying that very thing that more money and more women is better, so clearly everything else is follows suit. Or, so I forget. Yeah, I mean, it was, but it's true. I mean, this is, this is a subculture <laughs> even more than sports, although athletes do it with their training, where. A, there's some real personality disorders going on, but when you want to have more muscle, then everything is at the extreme. It is an extremist subculture in terms of diet, training, drug, lifestyle. Agreed. Everything is more because that's what more – because if some is good, also maybe very American attitude. I've read that Europeans typically have had a very different approach to drug use. America – Everything, if it's more, it's better. A bigger truck is a better truck. Bigger tits are better tits. More money is better. Like, it's just bigger numbers are better numbers. A $100 bill is better than 520s because it's big. It's just, this is an American attitude. It's interesting that it's showing up in other countries, but I have to think that's where that comes from. If you're going to take half a gram, you need to stop being a pussy and take a full gram. 
and, you know, drug, if you're going to drug, drug like a fucking man. Maybe it's cultural. I'm Middle Eastern. There's a lot of macho in Middle Eastern culture. I don't know what Agreed. it is. But that's, that's a mentality among athletes. If 200 grams of protein is good, 300 is better. If 100 mics of thyroid is good, 200 mics must be better until you go into uh, heart, uh, cardiac arrest. All right. So, okay. So I, I, I agree with you, but I, I, I do wonder if there's something else going on. So, it's completely it's completely possible, and I you know and again to you and to the listeners, I really want to emphasize that that's high end theoretical shit. Which I don't think yeah, anybody, no, I don't think the foremost expert on earth really knows a hell of a lot more than we do. Um, it's right, still up in there. And on a you know, in, in, a, in a practical sense, it may not matter. In in simply that, if we know that there are more is better, and I think we we mentioned uh, in the when we talked about muscle growth, there seems to be thresholds. It's like up to yeah, a gram great. or two, one thing, and then boom, you hit this new level, and it's not exponential, but you see a big jump, and then you hit another. Yeah, it's, level log, it's literally logarithmic. If you take the, the, a perfect example of that is if you take your 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 natural example, you know, and you give them 750 milligrams of testosterone, they'll grow like a weed. Right. That same guy, you give them a thousand milligrams, they will grow much more than twenty five percent more, and no yeah. one really knows why. But it's and, true. And there are there are clear thresholds that are better. For, Forbes, um, did, uh, Gilbert Forbes, who's a lot of body composition stuff, he did a great curve. He took a bunch of anecdotal reports and looked at doses, and and he did he showed exactly that. He showed that basically more equals more growth. One guy actually yep. got – it was something stupid. It was like 20 kilos in a year, like 45 pounds, and he was just taking – it was like 120 milligrams of one of the quote-unquote girly drugs. Girly drugs. I think I, think I read that very thing. It was Anivar, I believe. Yeah, you take enough of it, and it doesn't matter. Where yeah. I was going to go with this also gets back to um, – so a couple things you mentioned. You mentioned that you've got these overlapping pathways, and when one gets, you know, tired, which is very much a, a humanization, it, it's not it's not that it gets tired. It's simply, uh, you know, it, it gets unregulated or dysregulated or can't, you know, can't work it out from capacity. Right? There's always there's always a rate limiting process. Right? There's always Agreed. any performance. You're, again, we love car analogies in this field. Your car can only go as fast as the slowest component. Right? You can Agreed. Put you can put all, you put a spoiler and air dam and this and that and the other, and if your motor sucks, you're still going to suck. You can, whatever's limiting is limiting. So certain pathways may become relatively more limiting. We, I even talked, you know, muscle growth tends to happen in, in, in fits and spurts. We talked about this in the muscle growth thing. My theory of sorts is that your body has to wait for all of these different pathways to kind of catch up and click at the same time. It could be if blood flow and nutrient flow because your capitalization is low. If that's limiting, you do some high rep work, boom, you get, like, you, br- you bring up the weak point. You, whatever it is. Now, you mentioned the different drugs. One has a greater effect on creatine phosphate. Buddy, uh, who, uh, a friend of mine sent me uh, Winstrol, which is known as a hardening drug, right? That's just, <laughs> is, it, it unbinds testosterone from its binding protein. It increases free testosterone. Now, this is pretty, that's pretty large because it explains that, okay, this is having anabolic effects, but it is, maybe this is why it works so well with straight testosterone. Testosterones are just bringing up the levels, but this is unbinding it, and free testosterone is more important. Is it possible 
given how these different steroids differently fit into the androgen receptor, have slightly different downstream effects within the muscle, could it be that taking more and or combinations is preventing any one system from becoming limiting? Maybe if the muscle cell says, I want to get bigger, but there's not enough creatine phosphate to support it, and you add a creatine phosphate increasing drug and up your dosage, is it possible that that will overcome the um, the limiting factor? Could that be a reason why high doses work better? Um, that is absolutely a rational and sensible uh thought process. Um, I actually tend to take almost exactly the opposite view on that and say that I think it's imperative or at least incumbent on the drug user to pair their nutrition and their training very specifically to their pharmacology. Meaning, if you're taking a a very retensive creatine phosphate driven drug, like let's just say Anadrol, you wouldn't actually want to train like a power athlete, why would you then want to train very uh, non-glycotic, high-velocity, sure. high-force, you know, because you're wasting all of that capacity that you're getting from the drug. So I yeah, find I, it, do you see what I mean? Like, I kind of use that same logic, but in the opposite direction. If that drug is going to give you these upregulated pathways, you should go out of your way to abuse those pathways. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking, I think we're looking, you're looking at a practical sense. I'm looking more of a biological sense. Uh, I understand, which is funny, because that's role reversal for us, really. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, You know, just in the sense of making sure, I mean, yeah, clearly you need to, and again, it's interesting that so much of bodybuilder diet and training lore probably came out of, I mean, hell, the Russians were doing it. You know the real reason the Russians used a three-week on, one-week off? It was A, so they could go home once a month. And it was B, so they could dose their drugs three on, one off. It was really that yep. fucking simple. The Germans yep. did it. They dosed three weeks on, one week off. They made their training balls out for three weeks and a week of recovery. It had nothing to do yep. with biological rhythms. It had to do with steroid rhythms. So Agreed. More volume in the off season when they were taking more drugs, and they peaked for peaking when they were taking less drugs to beat the test. That's where it yep. came from. Agreed. With bodybuilders, I think, very much more trial and error, but it worked out I, the same I, way. I'm rather unpopular in that I take your very, uh, very logic there, and I actually take it further. I think that the birth of the common view of periodization is actually derived from uh, drug use. I think that drug use oh, no, almost, I think you're right. almost demanded and dictated a periodized training model, and therefore the training flowed downstream from the necessities of drug use and not the other way around. I really believe that. Um, many, many in the field will argue me to their last breath, and I respect you know, them for that, but I still, I still think they're wrong. It, it could, you know, I think you frequently see a, a weird little feed-forward cycle. Like, I think there was maybe it's – hard, it's always hard to know for, for sure. It's clear that by the time the drug protocols were becoming – more refined. I mean, the Germans were were meticulous in a way that only Germans can be meticulous, and that's not meant to be racist that's or very, negative. Very Prussian. Yep. In fact, Germans are. That's why they have thirty years of data on their drug protocols. They wanted. They're meticulous. They build great cars. They do great stuff. Culturally, they're a little bit insane. Same way the Japanese are obsessive, and Americans are Americans. It's just it is what it is. They Agreed. very much wanted to know exactly how to best use these things, and they did it through a lot of really solid science, and they did the drug protocols, figured out the training protocols, figured out how to beat the test, 
they they had data on everything. You ever read a book called Faust's Gold? It, it detailed a lot of what happened in the GDR and, and the aftermath of that by one of the athletes who got really fucked up by it. And it talks about they did they did the data. They're like, we want to know to the hour when the athlete can pass the test. We want to know exactly yep. how late it like, it like. But a lot of that I think did come out of that. So okay, I think we've covered that. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if we have a whole lot. I mean, getting into dosing and uh, here's another one, and then I think we can move on to other drugs, just because this is one where there's a lot of lore. Steroid cycling. If you look at old <laughs> steroid books, they were always these really complicated cycles where you added one drug and three weeks later you added another drug, and they would have these diamond patterns and these were truncated, and some would start low and build high, and some would start low and build to the middle and then come back down. And they looked, they looked lovely. It reminds me of filling out Scantron sheets in high school. Like I just wanted to make patterns because it just looked so cool to draw diamonds. Is there any physiologic – and usually the idea was we want to overload, get the most growth, and then lower testosterone so that we can get into hormonal recovery to come off. And maybe we should talk about post-cycle stuff and, and the current solution to post-cycle therapy. Does this cycling matter? Can, can you treat no. the system that way? No, absolutely not. Uh, complete and total fallacy. Yeah, it, it's very simple. Um, some of that actually comes from – other steroid technology. Uh, for instance, that does actually work with steroids like cortisone, where you can start at a low dose and slowly attenuate to nothing. And, okay. you know, because there's different mechanisms and different feedback loops, that does actually work. But with okay. a thing like an, with an androgen, it's sort of an all-or-nothing arrangement. If you're taking any, you're closing the feedback loop, and you're not going to get, re- quote, hormonal recovery. Um, your body will never have the impetus to manufacture until levels, whether they're endogenous or exogenous, decrease to a level that the body recognizes as hypoandrogen. So this idea right. of a tapering dosage, you know, if you go from 1,000 to 900, your body doesn't give a shit. If you go from 800, you know, 900 to 500, your body still doesn't give a shit. It doesn't care until you get all the way down to, like, 50. So the reality is you spent 10 weeks of descending dosage that did nothing except prolong your drug use and probably didn't give you any process, any progress during that time. Why take drugs for no progress? Either take a dose that's going to be efficacious or don't take a fucking dose. That's just common sense. Well, as I like to say, common sense isn't. It was always interesting seeing some of the the theoretical rationales based on misunderstandings. And, of course, you know, the diamond yep. pattern of the start high and cut back was to allow recovery. And like reverse dieting, all you're doing is staying in a deficit without letting dick happen. Bring your calories up yep. and get over it. The, yep. the whole escalating dose seemed to be, a well, we're getting androgen receptor downregulation, and we know the drugs start working, so we just need to take more. And I think the favorite line, again, back to Dan Duchesne, he said, you know what? We've tried all the cycling patterns for decades. They don't do shit. It all comes down to just taking more. Because yeah, dose over day, time. It comes it's down dose to over overdosing, time. period. Yep, and, dose over time. And, and so anyway, so let's talk a little bit about what happens when you come off, right? This is the big, okay. the big hassle with steroids, right? Anytime you take a drug, and for the listeners, it tends to shut down the body's own production. You take synthetic thyroid, 
and the body goes, oh, thyroid is too high. I better decrease levels that I'm producing, decrease in CSH, yada, yada, yada. And then when you go off, your your body's no longer producing. It's producing less. And for some period of time, you're kind of fucked. Yep. And and like you said, until levels go back to where they are or actually below those, the body tends to not upright and steroids work. The same is actually how birth control works by putting in Agreed. synthetic estrogen. The body goes, huh, we can shut down that system, and you don't get pregnant generally. Steroids work the same way. The body stops producing some testosterone. If we really wanted to get up our ass, we could talk about how estrogen is actually the signaling molecule for that feedback loop. It, and let's it is. Not, it is, yeah. Let's just not, unless you want to get into <laughs> it and some of that shit and other ways of raising testosterone. But the problem was always guys would use, they'd make all these great gains, and then they would come off, and A, they would go from being manly men to not not even normal men, right? Suddenly you go from... Agreed. 1,500 testosterone when normal, high normal is 1,100, and you come off and you are hypogynatal. You are castrate. You are a eunuch. You have no drive, no masculinity, no energy. Your poundages drop. You lose muscle. You basically turn into a little bitch. And guys hated it. And post-cycle therapy was like, ah, you use use this to to reboot the testicles, HCG, which is where the rumor of men's are drinking urine. Well, maybe he did drink urine, but the whole pregnant woman's urine thing comes from all these strategies to try to eliminate muscle loss and get the system back online and all this shit, okay? Question number one is, does it work? Is there a better way to do it? Is there a good way to do it? Obviously, de-escalating doses does more harm than good. You've taken steroids for 12 weeks. Boom, I'm done. I come off. Now what? Okay. Um... Well, let me actually start with something, again, that most people don't know. Most people are taking long-acting drugs. They're taking, you know, a long-acting testosterone like enanthate or cypionate or, you know, a hexacarbolate or what the fuck ever. But the reality right. is it's got a relatively long half-life, um, sometimes okay. a very long half-life. And maybe they're taking androlone decade, pretty common drug. Okay. Let's say they're taking testosterone and androlone. They're two super common drugs. They both have half-lives on, on the plus one week scale. They both last, you know, seven to 14 days. Right. So that means if you take your last injection on the first of the year, January 1, okay, okay if you calculate how long it takes for that circulating level of drug to get all the way down to what your body would recognize as hypogonadal or hypotestosterone, mm-hmm. It literally means you're not free of drug. You're not, quote, drug-free or out of the influence of the drug for something on the order of 30 to 50 days, okay? So the first month you think you're off, you're not. So that's important right out of the gate. So literally it's going to take four to six weeks to actually even get off, where most people take four to six weeks off before they start again. So really all they had was a period of relatively reduced dosage before they start again. That's pretty relevant. So now if you consider that and say, okay, you took your last injection on the first of the year, and now you're like, okay, next week I'm drug-free and I'm going to start my post-cycle therapy. And then they start jamming whatever gonadal agent, whether it's HCG or Colnit or whatever it is, a drug with the intention of causing the, the gonads to hyperactivate and generate a bunch of testosterone. Okay. If you already have hypo, or rather non-hypo, and in most cases, super physiological hormone levels, and you're trying to make the gonads make 
super physiological levels, it's it's worse than taking the fucking drugs in the first place. You might as well just continue taking steroids. Okay. Secondly, the systems responsible for manufacturing testosterone and all that are delicate, complex systems. They don't turn on instantly. They shouldn't. They can't. So this idea that you're going to force them to just come on overnight, it's like buying a condemned factory that used to make fucking widgets or whatever, and you just, it was condemned one day, and the next day you're like, everybody show up to work, we're going to make the fuck out of some widgets. Right. No. No, you're not. No, no, you're fucking not. There's a lot of shit that needs to go into the manufacture of anything. The same thing applies here. It is a long-term process. Okay. Most people will lie and say that they're, oh, my reproductive health and my natural production, that's my concern. I really want to preserve that. No. No, The reality is most people want to preserve their unnaturally accrued muscle gains. They don't want to get smaller and weaker. Which, one, begs me to say, well, then why are you not taking steroids? Because that's the best way to do that. And secondly, (laughs) um, it's just it's just false across the board. You're taking one group of drugs simply to replace the group of drugs you're no longer taking. That's a terrible approach to anything. So that's pretty much my entire stance on the PCT thing is you have two options. Either design a drug cycle that's much more and longer sustainable or just fucking suck it up and stop taking drugs, get smaller and weaker, get over it, and then begin again. I don't believe in this idea of bridging one group of drugs with another. Because the is there you know in that old compounds and we didn't really get into that because it wasn't necessary. All listeners need to know generally oral drugs much quicker mode of action out of the system faster. That's why they tend to be good. Absolutely. Injectable. Agreed. Since they're in the muscle and leaking out, longer mode of action but stay in the system longer. I mean you can pick up certain drugs and fat cells months later. One yes. one idea was okay let's assume it takes a month for your last steroid injection to clear. You take your last injection on January 1st for the next four weeks. You use short-acting orals. Maintain okay. testosterone signaling. Now four weeks have passed so that the pills and at least facilitate. Not, I mean, you're never going to reverse it. You're never going to fix the problem. Will that at least facilitate? And then you start putting in your HCG clone or whatever. Can you at least accelerate the, the reboot process? That entirely depends on how... Finally, you're going to define your reboot. Can okay. you force the body to manufacture testosterone under conditions that it really doesn't want to? Yes, you absolutely can. Does that in any way indicate health? Absolutely not. Health is, by definition, a condition that happens naturally. You don't force health. You don't make somebody healthy. You yeah. allow them to become healthy. There's a big okay. fucking difference there. So anytime you're mediating the process with a drug, it's not health. It's force. Mm-hmm. There's okay. a big difference. Maybe it's semantic, but I don't think that it is. Because okay. no matter what you're doing, whenever you're facilitating a response, there are consequences somewhere. And I think people lose sight of that. So in that vein, okay, so you take your steroids, let's say you put on, you know, 10 pounds of actual muscle, I'm not talking about water bloat, all that uh-huh. crap. Like you said, here's what people want to do. It's like they, they, it's like the way they diet. I want to diet for a month, lose 10 pounds or whatever, go back to my old eating and keep it off, and then there's stuns that they get fat again. Right. Is there a way, right, so you, you, you do your training, 
whatever, you, you accept that you're going to lose some when you come off, just the reality yes. of it. Clearly, that muscle has been built under conditions of above-normal testosterone, right? Super physiological, that's what the word means. Agreed. Can you maintain it? Can you maintain all of it? Can you maintain any of it? If your testosterone was 2,000 nanograms per deciliter on, about double normal, and now you drop back to a pedestrian seven to 800 where you'd normally be, can you hold on to that extra muscle that you added, or is it gone? Have you just wasted 16 weeks of your life to spin your wheels? Well, two things. One, um, most recreational steroid users are way above 2,000 nanograms per deciliter. And when they come off, random numbers. And when they come off, when they come off, they fall way below the 700 that you referenced. However, if if people let's say they rebound, let's say they're normal with 700, they went to some ungodly amount on. Finally, the system gets back to normal. At 700, is there any way to keep the, any of the muscle you gained at, say, absolutely. three to 4,000 when you're back at 700, or is it just all going away? No, absolutely there is for many reasons, including one that we talked about extensively in this yeah. very conversation, is that there was vast myonucleation and literally a structural and physiological change in the muscle that they possess. They are always okay. and permanently different and more muscular than previously. So even under reduced androgen influence, they still have more muscle in which to grow, and they okay. will grow more readily. Secondly, one of the major influencers on the loss of muscle post-cycle versus the retention of muscle post-cycle is specifically what was gained on cycle. The sure. gain, the retention rate from use of Anivar is far higher, even though the total net gain is lower, than, say, the retention rate on just pure testosterone. Sure. Pure testosterone, you might problem. go up 20 kilograms. You might go up, you know, you might go up to 25 pounds. But when you come off, you'll probably go down 10 pounds, leaving you a, sure. a, a, a net gain of, you know, whatever, maybe 50% net gain. Whereas yeah. on Anivar, you might only go up 10 pounds but you might only go down two pounds. Now, yes, yeah, eight is less than 15, but yeah. it's still, in, in a ratio-wise, you get a much greater retention rate with the cleaner, more contractile protein-driven drugs than genomic-based drugs. Yeah. And I was really thinking more in terms of the actual muscle tissue. Ra- I mean, the, the water's temporary no matter what. Um, Agreed. Just like, just like carb loading. You can gain seven pounds in, in two days if I carb load the shit out of you, but guess what? It doesn't mean anything. Very um, transient. Is there, in that vein, just really quickly, is there a better or worse way to train and diet when you come off? You've done how you train however when you're on cycle. Now you're going to stop. You're going to accept four to six weeks of feeling terrible. Is there a better or worse way to make sure you retain as much actual contractile tissue as possible? Absolutely. And ironically, I'm probably the lesser uh, expert in this conversation to really address that. You probably have more acumen specifically on dealing with kind of the natural environment, but absolutely. Yeah. You need to guarantee that you know, nitrogen is at, a, at, a, at an acceptable level. You have to absolutely uh, reduce training load to prevent yeah. any overtraining because you don't have the hormonal facilitation to combat yeah. it. Um, and, and basically, you need to train like a intelligent, well-organized, natural, yeah. because literally that's what you are at that moment. Right. Um, well, we might argue intelligence, but regardless, um, <laughs> if we want to be if we want to be bitchy, um, I, I actually I'm just going to fall back. I remember, uh, you know, 
Duchesne, who's dealt with this a lot, he, he came to the conclusion that, that I agree with completely, was, look, when you're on, you're going to grow no matter what you do. Sets 5, sets yep. 20, doesn't make an ounce of difference. Get stronger, get bigger, take more drugs. He believed in using high reps when you were on, because it was easier on the joints, yep. was easier on a lot of things, so that also when you go off, you can maintain that tension, right? We talked about this in the muscle growth thing, refer people there. Tension overload. High tension on the muscle is the, the primary driver on growth. you got to get stronger in a medium rep range. And his point was if you train in – if you you 315 for a set of eight when you're on, when you go off, you can maybe do 275 for a set of eight. You're going to lose muscle. You get to 315 by 20, you can probably crank out 315 by eight when you're off. You've maintained the tension load, and I think that pretty much sums it up. Especially in an environment where you can no longer do large volumes, which might counterbalance that in a, in a quote, separate argument. You could say that you, you could replace that uh, stimulus with volume, but if you truly lack the hormonal facilitation to tolerate that volume, I think your argument is very sound. Which actually brings us back to the comments about periodization and drug use. If you look at what they were doing, <laughs> that was exactly it. They were doing high volume, lower intensity when the drugs are going to make you adapt. What did they do when they peaked? Lower volume, higher intensity. They were able to Agreed. maintain intensity by cutting the volume and norm. I mean, like, if bodybuilders, it would make the same exact sense. Train high reps for 12 weeks when you're on. Train low reps with the same weights as you were using. Two to three sets of five to eight, rather than your 20 sets of 20, that's how you do it. I, I um, tend to, which I really brings know. us round about to something maybe we should have discussed earlier. Should you train, or can maybe can or should you train any differently when you're on versus when you're off? Not only should you train differently when you're on versus off, but you should train very specifically to the drugs in which you're choosing to take. Okay. I would not prescribe the train, training program for somebody taking Nandrolone and, and Anadrol as I would for somebody taking Anavar and Primavalin okay. because they're, they're upregulating different pathways and they're facilitating different systems which demand that they be taxed differently. Okay. Uh, you, 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 I, I, hope you follow, I hope that you and the listeners are following that. It's, it's yeah. as specific as that. Um, well, um, once again, you know, because you know, I, again, I think probably most listeners are interested in jackedness. Let's just focus on bodybuilding. Okay. Can you, we already talked about maybe using higher repetition ranges. Oh, there's also a joint thing. You know, everyone's like, ah, Dorian was strong and Ronnie Coleman was strong and Ronnie Coleman is now a walking disaster. Yeah, he's Dorian is one of the most injured athletes in the sport. The guys that just did volume and we can go, ah, it's baby training, but guess what? They... Yep are a lot healthier in the yep, long Vince run. Taylor's I a hate, healthy I hate, dude. <laughs> I fucking hate volume training. I hate doing reps and sets. I was far, but your joints will thank you in the long run, and people forget about that. They want to get all strong and macho. Yep, I'm on, and I can do 405 for one. Like, yeah, great. Let me know what happens when that pack tears and you can't train yep. for a year. Um, but, you know. <laughs> I've done that. I know just what it's yeah, like. Yeah, every year. <laughs> And the, the, the old saying, you, you never learn that lesson until you're too old for it to matter. And then you can try to tell young guys, he'll never listen to you. 
Anyway, so, you know, can you, should you increase frequency? I mean, you can, obviously. Your recovery is improved. Should you? Should you train more frequently to take advantage of the, again, we're talking about just muscle growth, plain and simple, bodybuilders, or just the average guy that wants to get jacked and, um, and be a walking, a walking brick wall of muscle. Should you train higher frequency, higher volume, differently? This is just general rule. I am going to say the reality is I'm not sufficiently versed to answer that. Oh, okay. um, I know experts who absolutely say that high frequency is the answer, don't argue, and they can cite a ton of research, and all of that research is good and real and relevant, but I am also going to say this. I have what I think is relatively clear vision, and I can look at the landscape of who has done what, and I have seen some really big, strong individuals that trained once a week, some even yeah. less than that. Um, would they have been bigger with higher frequency? So goes the argument. But in the same breath, you know, Tom Platt squatted once every two weeks, and he was fucking ginormous. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine his legs would have gotten bigger if he had trained any more often. Um, maybe yeah. they would have, but it's hard to envision. So um, if, I think that may come down to one of those things where all of the data suggests that it's so, but something about our application is maybe not bearing that out so much. Um, that's kind of where I stand on it at the moment. I, I have a very high respect for the uh, intellectual acumen, and so I'm not going to say it's not true. I'm just going to say that I'm really not seeing it in practice. That's okay. what I'm going to say. And, and I would maybe add, this is, a, again, I think this, this goes to the fact that steroids work better than anything. Let's just get to breath. Agreed. As much as everyone loves to follow the current champion training program, ah, Dorian did HIT. Lay, no, he didn't, but B, who gives a fuck? Uh, Lee Haney trains twice a week, eight sets. Anaya, Arnold trained 20 sets of 20. When you look at the top, especially when you add drugs, it seems to really not matter. <laughs> like, in that, the agreed. team, you're going to get as big as you're going to get Almost regardless, especially if you're taking Agreed. enough drugs. For natural, that's certainly not the case. They're clearly veteran. When, you, when we know for a fact, when we, fact that drugs build muscle without training, you just don't. I think there's also the issue of what you, like I know Platt, you know, came up as a power lifter, switched to bodybuilding. The way these guys train during their development is often very, very different than how they train when they're they're at the top. Agreed. Agreed. But it, 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 from an empirical standpoint, I mean, we know this, if there were a single best way to train, we'd have figured it out by now. we got got 100 years Agreed. of this under our belt. There are principles. Agreed. We know individual differences, psychological. Now, I will related. say this. I, will, I do want to cut in and say this. In reference to people saying, you know, that the higher frequency is, is better and there's so much ref, reference material about it, um, something that my good friend Mike Isratel points out regularly, and I will – I will see this absolutely. Um, I, I don't necessarily know that it generates better results, but I do believe uh, that it, as he would tell you, it, it is um, a, a lower stress on the body. There, it, it tends to come with much less negative connotation. Doing 20 sets in one day versus sure. doing five sets on four different days always is going to generate less trauma, less injury, less badness. So I do accept that. That may not be a difference in results so much as a difference of sustainability. Sure. I, I will absolutely see that. 
Uh, and that's relevant, although I have to say that I personally didn't do it, and I am a fucking orthopedic mess, so maybe I should have. Yeah, and that, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing it, it, it. It's really funny, you know, watching. I've been following this for three decades. You have, too. Training goes through okay, yeah. Training goes through, you know, whatever. We, when Cohen was popular, most guys trained once a Five week. Five to Yep. And then, you know, then there's some guys trained a little more. You had the one bench presser. He trained bench five days a week. But he did it. In, he would tr- work up to 90%. If he felt good, he'd go for it. And if not, he'd stop. That's a very – most people don't have that kind of self-control. Now we're in kind of a, a frequency thing, and it's usually based on, well, protein synthesis is blunted beyond a certain point. I counter that, well, that's fine, but there are both volume and intensity thresholds. Agreed. And at the advanced level, all right, great, so you're training seven days a week, but you're doing two sets per workout. Do we even know that that will trigger an adaptive? Is that enough of a load per day? Like, you can only distribute training to such and such a degree. And I, I very much agree. You know, even everyone just, like, loves to bring up the fucking Bulgarians. Well, that's all good and well. This was an excruciatingly high-skilled sport. Most of it came, they took lots of drugs. Most of them got one out of one out of 66 succeeded, and everyone pretty much thinks that Abijah was trying to keep them tired all the time so they wouldn't go out chasing tail, you know. Yeah, and and a lot of that was really, a lot of that was really more neurological adaptation than it was actual strength or muscle, so I don't even think it's relevant to anything, quite honestly. It's probably more relevant to track and, probably more relevant to track and field than it is to any other sport. Yeah, high, high skill stuff, you need enough practice. Olympic lifting, especially the snatch, is as high skill as you. It's all people don't realize. I, I this kills me. I've ranted about this repeatedly. Everyone's like, "Well, they went to max every day." And here's the thing: a max power clean is not a max deadlift. When when the nope. power clean is about eighty percent of your best deadlift, I got news for you: even a max effort is submaximal. That's way yep. different. You, you go pull six maximum singles and deadlift every day, and I will come visit you in the orthopedic center in two weeks because you will be broken. I don't give a yep. shit about the, the Norwegian frequency project. The average intensity <laughs> per week is 73% across the week. It has maybe one heavy day. Do not tell me yeah. this Bulgarian bullshit has to end because all Olympic lifting is just such its own specific. Parallel lifting, there's a neurological component. I know guys are training more frequently, but like we talked about, are the numbers really that much better? Yes. Chalet was literally training not just one one lift per week. He was literally training one fucking day per week. He would squat bench and deadlift one day a week. Yeah. You know, Sunday, he would come into the gym, squat bench and deadlift, didn't come back to the gym until Sunday again, and the dude yeah. was a world record caliber lifter. So you, there, there, there's arguments to be made. <laughs> if you read, I think it's Primordial Strength by Marty Gallagher, and I love Marty Gallagher. Yep. That Jones coach is a great guy, and it's got these things by all these top power lifters and how they train so infrequently. And a buddy of mine is like, every single one of them was on drugs. And Vladimir yep. Dishurin, who was an Eastern European coach, wrote a couple of really tedious books. He he wrote in one of them about one of the most honest things I've ever seen. He goes, "You cannot gauge optimal training from steroid users because drugs make you adapt." no matter what you do. Yep. You can train once a week. You can train 14 times a week. It does not make a shit's worth of difference. And especially when you're talking about a maximum strength, and this will piss off the power lifters, 
relatively low-skilled activity. I'm not saying yep. – no, I know you is a different thing. I know a three-ply shirt takes intense amount of skills. It's not a snatch. It's not a 100-meter nope. sprint. It's not speed skating. It's not swimming. Well, In the big scheme of things – you and I would be simple movement. Yeah, you and I would be equally hated because I've had that same discussion with actual, real, live, you know, coaches know. outside of the world of powerlifting. And not only is powerlifting relatively low skilled, it's 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 ridiculously low velocity. These powerlifters yeah. that think they're speed athletes need to pull their head out of their ass and realize sure. how fast the real world idea. moves. Yeah. <laughs> nothing. When, when the average, the, the fastest the average bench press in the world. Right. The, the fastest bench press in the world is embarrassingly slow compared to the average bowler, for fuck's sake. Sure. <laughs> I mean, the average sporting event, you have two-tenths of a second to generate maximum force. Two, that's, a, right. that's, a, that's, a, that's an eye blink. A, yep. a, a, a fast maximum bench is what? Two seconds? Two, two seconds, five, maybe five, three. Times that? Regardless. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, exactly. here's another question, and this is, this is just setting up her random anecdote because it's one of my favorites. Okay. It's possible, right? We know that steroids improve recovery, improve, you know, all that good stuff. Is it, and again, we're talking about just bodybuilding here, is it possible to increase training load so much that you overcome the effect of the steroid? Absolutely. Um, not, not even sort of. Overtraining is a real thing. Overtraining is simply exceeding your adaptive ability whether it's natural or drug-mediated. And absolutely, there's no doubt in my mind that John Defendus overtrained despite his staggering drug use. Sure. No, it's, that's not even vaguely a, a question. It's a reality. Yeah. It's, and the only reason I bring it up, I'm sure you've read the rather humorous book, uh, Confessions of an Unlikely Bodybuilder. I oh, God, yeah. I forget the author. I know, I know, I know. This is just me being being. It's, it's funny, though. Everyone should read it. All you listeners out there, go to the library. And, and yes, go yeah. to the library. They don't actually want you to pay for it. But go to the library yeah. and get it. It's worth reading to, for the joke. Yes. The, the, short, the short version of this book, it's about a, 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 I think he was a college or high school professor. He gets into the bodybuilding subculture. He's dealing with all these crazy people, including training with a group of powerlifters that wear diapers when they deadlift because they shit their pants from training so hard. This is not a joke, by the way. And he no. decides to go on steroids. And he's not taking a lot. This was, you know, early days. And he took he, he starts training six days a week, three hours a day, and he still didn't grow. And I think his conclusion <laughs> was, oh, this is interesting, but steroids, no, the steroids were fine. You were the problem. You're training 18 hours. You're training about nine times too free, too much. Like drugs are great, but they're not that great. It's just, yep. There is a limit, and he exceeded it at such a ridiculous level. It is. It's a funny book. Um, highly recommended, um, <laughs> just from an amusement standpoint. Okay, related question: Should people eat differently when they're on? Um, that is probably the topic of an entirely separate podcast. Okay. Uh, without doubt, but just very quickly, I will say this. Um, in comparison, for instance, if I ask you, dealing with all your natural people, roughly how many kilocalories per kilogram, you would blurt out a number. If somebody asked me the exact same question, my number would be much higher. It is okay. just the fact that steroid use at large causes an overall elevation of the metabolism. Not surprising because metabolism is part of one of the many things that regulates growth 
Yeah. You have to do metabolic you have to metabolize in order to generate growth. Yeah. So the calorie requirements per body weight are greater. Not just not just in, in absolutia, but actually yeah. in, in well, scale. And secondly, and this is where most um athletes kind of make faces at me and give me a little shit, your protein requirements, again, per kilogram, are actually measurably lower when using yeah. drugs than when, when not. That's actually what I was kind of leading up to, is there seems to be two competing philosophies. One is, since you're growing faster, you can and should eat more protein, upwards of two grams per pound. Like, that's Dante Trudell. Like, nothing but respectful. Mm-hmm. I like the guy. He's super intelligent. Dog crap is a well-thought-out train. You know, yada, yada, yada. He's big on the higher, and, and, and there's a logic to that. But there's also this issue of, you know, we're looking at nitrogen retention, I don't want to Agreed. get into that deeply where we know that steroids increase, you know, things like amino acid recycling. You don't lose as much protein to metabolic processes. And, 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 and that's not a little. That's a lot. That, that, that is Lowry a very measurable. Yeah. Yeah. Lonnie Lowry wrote a, a, an old article for the old Peak Training Journal, which I know you remember. And he kind I of do. mapped that out. And he was like, yeah, you know what, even if nationals might benefit from 1 to 1.1 grams per pound or whatever, he's like, on drugs, you need less. And that's the yeah. kind of the debate um, with, with both philosophical camps kind of arguing back and forth. Yeah, the, the, the loss, the, the, the reduction in catabolism and overall nitrogen excretion, without talking about anabolism, just the, catab- the, 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 the uh, blunting of catabolic effects and loss of nitrogen through deamination and all these other processes is tended somewhere around 30%. Yeah, so okay. you get 30% more muscle just from not losing muscle before you even get the fucking anabolic effect. Now, that 30% literally is nitrogen you don't need to consume. So if, you know, 2 grams per kilogram is required for your natural, it literally, by definition, is only 1.7 for the drug-using yeah. athlete. It, okay. It's actually, um, when you add up all the various metabolic effects, I typically, typically 5%. You, you literally only need about 75% as much protein per kilogram as a natural. Um, and in some cases, I've gotten away with coaching people at even less than that. People that are still growing, growing now. Now, you know, let's be clear. I'm talking, you know, I'm the real deal. I'm not going to coach somebody to be, you know, homeostasic. If they're not accruing muscle mass, I get under the hood and find out why. And I have literally had very high-level, very muscular individuals gaining muscle mass at 1.5 grams per kilogram of nitrogen. No problem. So, and here's an interesting little little bit of trivia. This is something I've, I've been discussing with my buddy Chester. Is women have lower protein requirements than men? And there's, a, there's, Agreed. there's two major there's two major reasons. One is that they have less muscle mass. Some part of it is body Agreed. composition. Related. They typically have about 10, but they need less per unit weight. And realize right. most research still expresses protein in total body weight. I don't care for this, neither here nor there. However, estrogen, has, <laughs> it, it, incre- it actually increases the use of fat for fuel. It has been shown to significantly decrease amino acid oxidation during aerobic exercise. If you inject estrogen into men or give them an estrogen patch, they use more fat and less protein for fuel during exercise. Women's bodies, due to the effects of estrogen, do break down protein at a slower rate. And I have to wonder 
if this is not part, I mean, on top of any direct effects, testosterone, you know, the androgens are having themselves, if some of that estrogen effect is not involved as well. It's very, very possible. And it's also interesting to note that um, it seems the fatty acid oxidation strangely changes in some sort of, you know, uh, retention-dependent curve as you get fatter or leaner. It seems that as you get fatter, um, the use of fatty acids goes up, and as you get oh, leaner, the use, for, the use proportionally of fatty acids goes down, and I suspect you're exactly right. Because of that whole, the fat is where the aromatase is, the aromatase is where the estrogen is, so as you get fatter, you get more estrogenic, and therefore you're yeah. able to use more fat, and it's a it's an all snowballed together circle of donut of life, I think. Yeah, and that's something, you know, that's always been a big area, you know, looking, focusing more, mostly on natural. For me, the big issue is, you know, muscle muscle loss at low body fat. And Gil Forbes showed a million years ago the, the proportion of, of weight loss as lean muscle is much lower the more fat you're carrying. It's because you have more fat available. You release fatty acids more readily. He didn't look at hormones and mechanisms, but, like, we know this is factually the case. As you get leaner, you know, men can lose one pound of muscle for every three pounds of fat. Like, it's a really shitty ratio. And, yeah. of course, steroids make this go away. But, yeah, I think I think all of that is probably going on with this, with this overall decrease. You know, the androgens are decreasing protein breakdown directly. The estrogen may be shifting fuel utilization, carrying more body fat, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, so what you're saying, now, is there is there a benefit of more protein when you're on? You may not um, need it. Can it help? Well, you know, and that's, a, that's an argument that I'm willing to stomach. Um there's a difference between need and tolerance, and sure. it is very highly argued by some experts, and I think you might even be one of them, that uh-huh. um, in, in terms of uh, energy utilization, protein is, the, relatively speaking, the least likely to can be converted into fatty acids. Yeah. So sure. overeating protein is probably less uh, lipogenic than overeating carbohydrates or fat. But you know, fat needs energy contributing. The early studies show that great protein requirements are met. Jacking in more protein doesn't lead to more muscle. Adding more energy from cal- from carbs or fats does. Um, Agreed. So even in that sense, it's kind of a wash. Yeah, you're not going to get it fat. To, to me, and I think more that that might be the biggest effect is protein is the most filling. And let's yes. face it, whether physiological or psychological, people go, I'm bulking. i got to have the gallon of ice cream at bedtime. And they get fat as fuck right. and wonder why. You know, right. Dante instituted those carb cutoffs at 6 p.m. And not because there's magic behind them. It's to prevent the gallon of ice cream at bedtime effect. Yeah. I do think if yeah. you've got now, someone who does tend to go nuts with their food, like, yeah, eating more is good. Eating too much is not good. And it might help control appetite a little bit or maintain blood sugar or whatever, whatever. Now, being, being a little bit off point, but talking about the, you know, dietary requirements of a drug user versus not, and it's, it's a little less off point than maybe it could be. Um, I tend to always just stick to requirements. Um, I think yeah. that two grams per kilogram for uh, a drug user, and by and large, I don't deal with naturals, so I'm not yeah. even going to mention it because I just don't. But in, yeah. in general, I think two grams per kilogram of nitrogen is more than sufficient for anyone, probably overkill in 99% of the cases. 
And then people go, well, how about I just eat more so that I, you know, just because I like to or whatever. And my argument is always this. No, because additional protein above your requirement has no efficacy. It's not going to do anything positive. However, carbohydrates, by definition, generate an insulin, generate an insulin response. Insulin is very, very accepted to be anabolic. So if you have one food that's going to do nothing anabolic, and you have one food that's clearly going to generate an anabolic response, I think your decision is pretty fucking simple. Um, I think you've got to be a hammerhead to really screw that one up. Overeating carbohydrates, or not overeating, but trading any macronutrient for carbohydrates is going to generate an insulin response. As long as you're not, you know, in peril of getting overly fat, that's always positive. So that's that's my that's my argument okay. slash solution to that conundrum. Uh, you know, w- w- one generates hormonal response and one doesn't. I'm always going to go the route of the hormonal response because hormones are cool. Fair enough. <laughs> and I think that acts as, as a good as a good segue or seg into what's probably going to be the the final topic. And this could certainly be its own its own podcast. So we've talked mainly about steroids because they've been classically, you know, the primary drug of use. But we yep. also know that athletes are using a billion other compounds, plus or minus. I'd agree. So, you know, you mentioned insulin. Clearly that was yep. used, uh, it came into because it was, it was legal, it was cheap, it's the ultimate anabolic. Still is. Early on, people, t- you know, but people of course think of insulin as bad, and it, it, you know, like everything good and bad are, I'm not gonna say it's all relative, because I find that trite and pointless, but it's context dependent. Insulin Agreed. is very good in muscle. It's maybe not so good in fat cells. Uh, levels, release patterns, yada, yada, yada is all relevant to this, you know. Certainly guys who yep. used it early on tended to get fat or will be, you know, all there's been some theory about why this was. Growth hormone got added. We People, you know, bodybuilders have used thyroid medication, ephedrine, quenbuterol. We've got IGF-1, we've got peptides, we've had some crazies using interleukins, which was a whole nother yeah. kettle of fish. Um, you know, you, you name it, bodybuilders are, take your pick, nuts or fearless, however you want to look at it, it doesn't matter. They they want to, they, they use what works. Athletes use other things. GH, great for joint health, really important yeah. for overall recovery. Thyroid can keep you lean. Clen has its play. You know, you, you, there's a reason athletes, all the, the medical stuff, they don't work that well or don't work a lot. If that were true, they wouldn't use them. Athletes wouldn't use Agreed. them if they were helped a little, period. Not That's consistently. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about some of these ancillary drugs, I'm probably focusing on the big ones like peptides, SARMs, a whole other level of detail. Two yeah. esoteric, the interleukins got them. People doing prostaglandin injections and shit, which they probably still <laughs> are. Like, you can get so deep down this rabbit hole that most people wouldn't be able to find them or use them without killing themselves anyway. Yeah. yeah. Growth hormone and insulin are probably the two that land on everybody's list. Oh, okay. If not, I'm going to use that. I'm interested in that. What's that about? Um, insulin makes me snicker. Uh, anybody who thinks insulin isn't uh, efficacious for bodybuilding should just stop eating carbohydrates because sure. every carbohydrate, high-carbohydrate diet, you know, all through the 70s and 80s that made so many awesome fucking bodybuilders, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, whether they were taking exogenous insulin or not, 
they were taking a high carbohydrate diet, which made sure. a high endogenous insulin environment. Yeah, right. So they were insulinogenic. So let's not let's not beat around the fucking bush. Lots of really awesome physiques were built on and around insulin. It's a real yeah. thing. Um, okay. It works great. Um, there is some, unlike steroids, um, the da- which the dangers are long-term. The dangers are, you yeah. know, cardiac health over the long-term, blood pressure over the long-term, that sort of thing. Unlike that, insulin does have a certain short-term problem. You can get hypoglycemic and, you know, get confusion and nausea and potentially even die. Although bodybuilders are not a bright lot and no one's really died yet. So I'm okay. really kind of writing that. I'm really kind of writing that off as theoretical. Um, okay. But it, it does work. The problem with things like insulin is they are much more persnickety. It's not a just take it and it works. You have to have right. a much better thought out strategy. You have to have much better regimentation. They're, they're considerably more or less user friendly. Um, okay. but no less, uh, effective. No less efficacious. Okay. Uh, growth hormone falls into that same category. Um, it works wonderfully for what it does. Um, absolutely produces, um, well-being, health, joint health, elevations in body weight, reductions in body fat. It tends to be a bit more of a longer term kind of scenario. Okay. I don't think taking growth hormone for six weeks is going to do much, but taking okay. growth hormone for six months will do wonders. It's not a question. Okay. Um, a problem there mainly is cost. It's, you know, by far the most expensive therapy you can use. But yeah. um, the absolute delving into you know, what it is, how it works, and how to use it would take multiple podcasts. It's complicated <laughs> shit. But, yeah. yes, as a rule, you can recognize that it, it's, out, it's out there. Almost everybody famous is doing it, and it works really fucking well. That's so, it, all I have to say. Yeah. So kind of going, you know, going back to that, and like I, I've written about this many years ago, and you know, insulin came around, and, and a lot of it was availability, right? When 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 steroids yes. came, were, were hard to come by, right? Once they were legalized, and all the drug cartels and drug dealers kind of went away in the eighties, you used what you could get. If you couldn't get it, you know, they wanted a new anabolic. Insulin was yes. cheap, easy, available at the time. You could walk into any clinic and go, give me insulin needles. Because if a diabetic does that, it means he's about to die and they have to give it to you. So I don't know if that's still true. Yes. Duchesne said, yeah, we tried insulin. Everyone got lethargic and fat. Why didn't insulin by itself have all these wonderful – was it a misuse? Does it only work when it's combined with other compounds? Um, it's it's um – it's a strategy issue. Can you use insulin without anabolic steroids and accrue uh, benefits? Absolutely. It's done every day in track and field. I don't think okay. there's a hundred meter guy. I don't think there's a hundred meter guy out there that hasn't used insulin as a performance enhancing aid. Uh, oftentimes, in the absence of anabolic steroids, but it is okay. very specific. The protocol must match the activity and the okay. and, and the timing and the dosage all must be synergized to a very high degree. It's a very much a thinking man's compound. You can't just take it and it works. So right. um, as smart as Dan was and as clever as Dan was, I remember his protocol, and it was kind of just a wholesale, you know, 10 I use three times a day, eat a bunch of carbs so you don't die, and wait for the growth. And that didn't really work because it wasn't specific enough. Your body, again, being a biologist, your body releases and metabolizes insulin in very specific responses to your environment. 
And that's yeah. the only time it really wants to. You can't just shove insulin into the system and assume something good's going to happen because it isn't. So, so, so you talk about, you know, track and field guys using it, possibly by itself yep. or with very low dose. Is it simply a post-workout to drive glycogen resynthesis? Like, again, I, I know we don't want to get into protocols because that could take years. <laughs> but is it, is it simply a matter of targeting it when insulin sensitivity is high, post-training to get a little bit of a boost in recovery? Uh, yes, and even if – Yes, to 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 uh, drive glycogen resynthesis to blunt fat metabolism. Believe it or not, a lot of track and field people have zero in- interest in becoming leaner. Oftentimes, they're overly lean as yeah. it is. Um, yeah. They use it to upregulate glycogen synthesis, possibly initiate some anabolic pathways through the at the time un, un- understood mTOR pathway which, you know, mTOR2 is almost exclusively insulin dependent. So it had some anabolic effects. It definitely had uh, glyconic and recovery effects without question. And it was also very good at driving tertiary compounds into the cells. Um, There's a reason why all the early creatine products were stuffed full of sugar, because sugar drove up insulin, and insulin drove the damn creatine into the muscle cells. So you could certainly skip that step and just use insulin to drive your creatine into your muscle cells. Um, I'm not suggesting everybody out there do that, but I am saying that lots of people named Carl Lewis did that uh, in the 80s. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fucker, I hate that guy. I throw him under the bus at every opportunity. <laughs> he gets on my fucking nerves. He's such a pompous dipshit about Ben uses drugs. Yeah, you just fucking stop. Just, just yeah. stop. Yeah. yeah, I can't even yeah. bring myself to read his his biography because yeah. it'll just be the most self-aggrandizing bullshit. Um, yep. Okay, so GH, so the you know, growth hormone has this tremendous number of effects, you know, name alone, growth hormone. Yep. Basically focused on this shit for three decades, you know, don't yep. eat before training, don't eat after training, dehydrate, use this on all this other stuff. The early studies, which were using growth hormone by itself, seem to suggest that by itself, and, and Duchesne said the same thing, no real muscle growth, certainly good for the joints, help with fat loss. You know, he mentioned that part of the reason he saw guys were coming bigger and leaner was the addition of GH to the bodybuilding stack. Is that another drug that it just has to be used properly? It works best in yes. synergy with other drugs? Um, I really believe that the whole synergy thing is wildly overplayed. Uh, I don't okay. just I don't I don't doubt for a moment that it's that it's relevant and it's for real. But um, the the major reason why growth hormone is or isn't effective is again environmental conditions. Setting okay. up the conditions, taking it at the proper time of day when the body's receptive, having the appropriate blood sugar levels, the appropriate levels of available nitrogen, uh, having the appropriate level of muscle damage. Again. It's very timing specific. Taking growth hormone in a completely recovered state generates almost zero response. Taking growth okay. hormone in a highly trained state generates radical responses because okay. its action, unlike androgens, its action is almost exclusively on satellite cells and that okay. sort of thing that only come into play in a traumatized environment. So roughly speaking, the harder and higher levels of training are res- responsive to growth hormone and everything else isn't. Again, think about this. Being a biologist, you've got to think of the big picture and think of nature. We have people in nature 
that overproduce growth hormone, produce sure. five and ten times the normal amount of growth hormone. They, 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 it's a legitimate medical condition. But strangely, they're not overly muscular. They're gigantic human beings, but they're not disproportionately muscular, whereas if somebody had a gonadal tumor or something and overproduced sure. androgens, you would find them fucking thickly muscled and dense, and yeah. you're like, holy shit, that guy's fucking, you know, that guy's on drugs. Well, that was, you but, know, Andre the Giant famously <laughs> had acromegaly, which was that, that release of growth hormone. Yeah. I know studies, I mean, he died very young. I know some research, like, they're not, that's what that connected to, like, it does build connective tissue. Agreed. It's kind of by itself, and, you know, there's frequently, they, they, they're big guys, but they're not necessarily, and I'm not saying he was weak by any stretch. I mean, clearly, he was a professional wrestler, he was good at what he did, but for his size, he should have been gorilla strong. And, and that's been found over and over. And yeah. most of that is simply because the body is producing that growth hormone in a constant kind of background sure. condition. It's a constant, ubiquitous background elevation, and it's not spiking and troughing in the appropriate rhythm to the environment necessary to build muscle, um, which is why all peptide insulin growth hormone and, and IGF and all the other ensuing peptides are very uh, condition and timing dependent. Okay. Um, one, one of the many reasons people like myself actually have a job is to, to elucidate yeah, right. that, that, that nuance to people that don't know it. And Dan Duchesne was, again, to go back to Dan, he was very, very clever in that he uh, really spent a lot of time looking at the pulsile release pattern of, of uh, developing children in re regards to how and why growth hormone does or doesn't work. And it, it was found that, you know, this constant long-term background exposure was not generating results. And the pulsile pattern of kids that grew was literally very large bursts in proximity to high exercise and high-carbohydrate feedings. The kid would, you know, run and play all day, stuff a cake down their neck, go to bed, wake up the next day an inch taller. Well, that's interesting. I wonder how that happened. And then yeah. you go back and look at, you know, look at the patterns and you realize that radical, immediate short-term growth was facilitated by growth hormone and the subsequent gotcha. growth factors. So, okay. again, very, very clever and, like you said, very, very intuitive that the men time to think that way. Not being a trained biologist, that's really extraordinary. And it also is great in elucidating that your growth hormone is very condition-dependent. It's not just, you know, take a big long-term whack in, you know, your hip, and then you just go about your day growing all day like you would on fucking, you know, testosterone and anthate. It's, it's, it's more the thinking man's, you know, organized yeah. kind of deal. It's also the rich man's ordeal, because it is damn uh, agreed. Like, I remember uh, agreed. when that when the whole GH thing broke and, and the big deal, you know, the uh, the anti-aging clinics were very big on that because they're trying to optimize those things, and they were making fucking bank and then some because um, it's absolutely thousands per month. I mean, I think it's come down in price, yeah. but it's not. It's not um, it's, it's definitely, you know, to get real pharmaceutical growth hormone, you're still spending, you know, five, six hundred bucks a month and, yeah, um, you know, which, compared which to isn't the end of the world, but it is a mortgage payment. I mean, it's a lot of money. Yeah, and, and it's funny. I remember, again, this was uh, one of Duchesne's things, again, I think, in Body Opus. He was like, you know, when steroids became harder to get and people were limited to certain compounds, 
I, I think it's fair to say on that point that probably the most relevant advice to anybody listening is if you were going to start a cycle that, you know, for, for the first time, you need to take okay. a dose that's definitely going to be efficacious. It's going to work, right. but, but not so high that it's potentially dangerous. And I think that's pretty straightforward. That's about five milligrams per kilogram weekly. So okay. if you're 220 pounds or less, it's four to 500 milligrams a week to start of sure. whatever compounds you can get or choose to use. And things just slowly escalate from there. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, that's completely consistent with Basin's work. He tested, what was it, 150 to 600. And in the range of three, four, you know, four to 600, it's when you start to see the really nice effects. I know exactly. the hormone replacement guys use about 200 a week, but they're looking to go mid, very, very distinctly mid-range, which right. if you're hypogonadal, certainly, you go from 280 to 500, you're going to feel wonderful. You're not going to be huge. You're going to gain a few pounds of muscle, but you're still within the normal range. At okay. 600, you are going to be way above the, the high normal yeah. range, um, yeah. at least depending on dosing protocol. So, all right. Well, That's I think that covers it. it. Hopefully, I was able to, to do my side of it and, and oh, get everything covered that the listeners wanted to hear. You know, while I have the same experience with you every time, and I have it with pretty much all the high-end guests I get on here, is uh, you didn't just do your part. Um, literally, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling hind stick on this whole thing. You know, I'm talking to people with far greater pedigrees and far greater acumen than my own. Um, I'm just lucky to have the niche that I have. and. Uh, yeah. You know, so yeah, don't don't ever don't ever feel like you're not doing your part, my friend. You're uh, you are the you are the part. And since this seems to always be the question, uh, where can listeners find more about your work? Um, well, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you know where the website for it is. But and uh, my website for my business is Team Evil GSP or EvilGSP.com. Uh, both go to the same place. And, of course, I'm on Facebook by the same nomenclature and uh, Google Plus and all that stuff. So uh, that's really your starting point for finding me. Uh, I don't actually post an awful lot of material. Most of what I do is this. It's, it's the spoken word. If people need my services, they need to send me an email, tell me what they're looking for, and uh, I'll decide whether or not they're for me. We'll communicate and then hopefully have some sort of consult either by Skype or telephone. And uh, just in case you don't know, my host for the day, Mr. Lyle McDonald, has, unlike me, an enormous amount of material available online uh, and a wealth of books, all of them wonderful. And you can find them, Lyle, at, is it Body Recomposition? BodyRecomposition.com. I have a Facebook group that I'm very active in, a forum that is very inactive. Uh, Facebook is usually the best place, and um, I'm working on this ridiculous women's physiology book that is actually coming into the end finally and uh I can't wait. Maybe, yeah, I can't wait I, for it to be done. Um and, and, I actually had to split I actually had to split it into two volumes because it got so oh, long. Wow. Training training will be later this year and the idea of having to go back and actually write a second book fills me with fills me with dread. But <laughs> it, is, it is what it is. Women are just that complicated. Um, Agreed. So much, so much information. So, uh, Broderick, I want to thank you for appearing on your own podcast. I, I guess <laughs> the best way to put it. Um, I definitely, I actually learned a lot. Like I said, this is steroids are. It's have always been a tangential interest. You know, we tend to we tend to become experts in the things of personal relevance, and I always trained in uh, 
did sports naturally, and, and Broderick knows, you know, he's forgotten <laughs> more about this, but I learned a lot. I hope uh, everybody had a good time and learned a lot, too. Thank you, Lyle. I appreciate it. And I really do appreciate you coming on here yet again. And uh, yet, yet again, you did an absolute great job. So um, with that, we'll wrap it up. And uh, this is B. Chavez and Lyle McDonald. Until next time, stay strong. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio. Thank you.